Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to the TetraCast. This is RPG Sites' weekly podcast where we get the site staff together to talk about our favorite genre of video games. My name is Brian Vitali. Joining me, I've got Josh Torres. Talk about long-awaited games at last. Adam Vitali. Hello. And James Galizio. Hey, folks. Uh, Chow Min Wu might be joining us in a bit. He is tied up at the moment. We'll see, and we'll introduce him if he shows up. We are halfway through May. We've got some releases to talk about. We've got a lot of news coming up from stuff that has been revealed this week. We've got a lot of new features up on the site, a handful of reviews to talk about. It's kind of a in stark contrast to what we had last week, which was very much a, a gap filler week and some games that we can finally talk about, some things to look forward to, some new dates, some new sales numbers. It's It's been quite a, a surprisingly busy week that was kind of a, a little bit unexpected. We didn't know how much these May doldrums would uh, persist. So I guess I will start with just going through a lot of the stuff that has been published on the site that we don't have the, the authors here on the podcast to talk about. And then as we go into the stuff that us here, the participants of the podcast have written, uh, uh, we'll go start talking about what they've done for the site, their experience with the games they've played, and things like that. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to just go in order here. I've talked about this on the podcast a few times, but I did finally write up a review for Weird West. It's up on the site. I won't linger on that any longer because I've talked about it uh, previously last week about my basically my final thoughts on the game. Also up on the site, we do have a written review for Voice of Cards, The Forsaken Maiden. If you don't remember what this was, this was like the surprise follow-up game to Voice of Cards, The Isle of Dragon Roars. This released in, uh, this being the Forsaken Maiden, released in mid-February. Adam talked pretty positively about it on the episodes of the podcast around that time, saying that he preferred it to the first game. Uh, but Paige was able to put up a written review for the second Voice of Cards game up on the site. So we do have the Voice of Cards Forsaken Maiden review up on the site as well. And then we talked about this as a news post last week, or potentially the week before, about the upcoming um, Utawara Mono side, side game spinoff, Monochrome Mobius. So James talked about the kind of the what this game is as like a prequel. I remember asking questions about whether it was set in the same world or how far ahead of the other games it was. But James put up a feature about the release details of Monochrome Mobius, Rights and Wrongs Forgotten. Um, James, do you want to like just kind of go over like what your feature like is trying to contextualize for the release of this game that's coming out later this year? So basically, um, Aqua Plus's uh, releases have been one of a few holdouts for worldwide uh, launches. Um, so Monochrome Mobius being announced to be coming out the same day worldwide on PC was a huge deal, but it does come at the expense of a likely uh, console localization. Because uh, NIS America is on the record saying that they don't have it, currently have any plans. Their September is already pre-stacked, so it's very unlikely that they just haven't announced it yet. And uh, it seems very unlikely that any other localization company will pick it up later down the line after the PC version comes out. Because, well, a localization will already be out there, and it just makes it harder for companies to justify so it's a bit of an unfortunate reality where it seems like anyone that played the series on console, even though there's a console version of Monochrome Mobius in Japan, even though it's coming out in Japan on the same day as PC, it seems very unlikely that Western players will ever have the chance to play that version, which is a very big shame because it wasn't until years down the line that uh, Utsuaru Mono got ported back to PC 
And for a lot of players, like they played it on console. So it's great that uh, Monochrome Mobius is a worldwide release, but it is a huge shame that it's PC only. And it seems like it'll probably stay that way. Yeah, it's just unfortunate because it's always really cool to see that more and more often we've got these day and date releases or even stuff like uh, Super Robot Wars that had an official English PC release and people didn't have to go for the uh, the Southeast Asian English version. But just kind of the, the release constraints about people who have played this game on other consoles and want to, you know, have gotten into on board with the series and they want to pl- play Monochromobius. Well, they've only really got the one option available to them in English officially. Yeah, that that's a, it's a, it's definitely like with SRW example, like at least people had the option to at least import the physical versions of the PS4 and Switch release from the Southeast Asian version, and then they'd have like English on them, so they'd have to settle. You know, if they wanted a physical version for console, there was still an option available for them to physically import those versions, or even or digitally import. And now now it's just that Monochromobius is not even that. Yeah, there's like a slim, slim chance that there will be English on the Japanese version, but that doesn't seem very likely. It's just like the last possible chance for folks to. Uh, yeah, I, I wonder if they actually like released any details about the about like the like the physical release of that game in Japan. That like if they actually said any supported languages. Yeah, no, I I checked the official site, and while they list the uh, supported languages on the uh, PC. Uh, version which is also the english site funnily enough mm-hmm. uh they don't list anything on the japanese side even though they're it's basically the same site it's just slightly changed up with like, that's weird like, yeah. <laughs> oh. so james does have that feature up on that site if you're not sure like what monochromobius is or what the details about the context of its release are james does a pretty good job of kind of detailing that up on the uh it's one of the cover pages right now at rpgsite.net you can click on that and give it a read if you're interested the next review is one that, in compared to all the other things in May, was one that was a little bit more anticipated, and that is for Aiden Chronicle Rising. Now, Adam had an interesting kind of task when reviewing this game, because this is kind of a game that not even a year ago, I think it was it was almost like a freebie, like in terms of the context of its release, because it came off the back of the Aiden Chronicle 100 Heroes Kickstarter. And I'll, I guess I'll let Adam speak to the his experience with the game, how it lies with the kickstarted game that we're expecting next year. I know he had, he had to spend a good chunk of time in his review, kind of contextualizing what this is, how it has to affect the way he like critically analyzes it and kind of what we take from this going forward and whether just to answer the question, should you play this or not also requires a little bit of context. So Adam, uh, I know you've been, uh, you put this review together for us and you have it up on the site. I know that Josh has had the opportunity to play this as well, but I'll start with you. Uh, just go, uh, go ahead and tell us about your time with aid in Chronicle rising. So let me first start out just by explaining what this is, because if you're not like, if this isn't something you've been like keeping tabs on, like actively, you might be confused, like, what is Aiden Chronicle Rising? So a few years ago, I think it was 2020, uh, the creator of the uh, Suikoden series, Yoshitaka Murayama, he did a, he basically had a Kickstarter campaign for a revival, like a spiritual successor for Suikoden. So not Suikoden by name, but Suikoden by any other metric, like obviously very similar sort of philosophy, sort of similar you know, concept to what type of game Suikoden was. So Suikoden hasn't had a game in over 10 years. So this is the type of thing that, you know, 
veteran fans of the series were interested in, very excited about, and it became a very successful Kickstarter campaign. However, after the campaign finished, the studio, the studio is Rabbit and Bear Studio, and the publisher is 505 Games, they announced another game. This is Aiden Chronicle Rising. It kind of came out of nowhere. That's why I kind of described it as like a freebie. It was like, oh, I guess we're getting this too. Right. So that game is the game we're talking about here. So this is not, Aiden Chronicle Rising is not technically the kickstarted game. You can call it a companion game or maybe like a teaser, a prequel uh, of some sort. And it's a spinoff. And that's the game that released uh, last week. Now, that game is a uh, side-scroller RPG, and it's developed by Natsume Atari. So it's a different developer, you know, same universe. It's meant to be a sort of, like, side-quel, prequel companion yeah, it's, game. Yeah, for people, like, uh, to, to make the comparison, uh, it's it's like the Bloodstained Circle of the Moon project to uh, the full Bloodstained Ritual of the Night Kickstarter. It's basically, yeah. like, you know, since the Kickstarter did very well they wanted to wanted to incentivize you know like hey let's get build up more excitement for this series or this project that we're doing and they have like a they released like a, a small like smaller game like separate game uh to that bigger project yeah unfortunately like with the bloodstained example the spin-off game was in that nas style uh whereas the main game ritual of the night was not so it was very obvious at a glance like oh these are different games Whereas here, the style is similar, at least like at a glance, you know, in just a still shot, you may not tell the difference unless you're, you know, paying attention. So there were, I did see quite a bit of confusion from people like when the game, when the, when the reviews came out and then the game released, like, wait, this game is out already? Like, no, not really. So unfortunately it has a similar art style look to it um, at a glance. So anyways, I did Chronicle Rising. So it features different characters than 100 Heroes. 100 Heroes, a lot of the characters have already been introduced, like the main characters. To be honest, I don't remember their names, but the Kickstarter has basically gone through all of them. Um, so this game, it's not like it, you were featuring different characters in the same world as an introduction to this world. Uh, so it's a side-scroller RPG. The main character is CJ. And the premise of the game is that she is basically on her sort of family's quest, uh, like a rite of passage, that she needs to find the largest treasure she can to bring it back to her family. And that is basically her rite of passage into adulthood. It's she's from a, like uh, it's implied like a nomadic tribe of scavengers. And that's just kind of what they do. And she stumbles across this, I call it a dilapidated town of new Nevea. And this town is, was abandoned a while ago, but premise of the game, a ruins has appeared, uh, has been found nearby and a lot of people are coming to this area to explore the ruins, to find history or wealth or whatnot. And so this town is basically building itself back up again as kind of travelers are coming back. And so that actually leads to a big chunk of what the game actually is, is that you're in this sort of building up burgeoning town. And there's a lot of people there who need supplies to build the town or to solve problems or whatnot. And then CJ kind of becomes like an errand girl where they're like, I need you to find these materials so I can build my inn or I can upgrade my shop or whatnot. And when this game was announced, they announced it as sort of a town building game. And that's what they meant, is that you're doing all these sorts of quests, all these sorts of requests for the 
like townspeople. You're going into the ruins and into see, other yeah. nearby areas. It is filled so to the brim with fetch quests too. You know, very basic fetch quests to just you know get these people what they need to like build up uh, build up resources that that serve you. So let's say that you wanted to like you know you're building up back this uh, restaurant, and then as you build more of this restaurant, they'll have more items for you to purchase to get buffs from this restaurant. For just a small example. Yeah, and there are a lot of quests in the game. Like, I'm not kidding when I say, like, this is the main thrust of the game on the gameplay side. There's more than 100 quests. I think if you include main quests, it's like 160 or something like that in a game that's about 15 hours long. So it's, there's a ton. And most of them are very straightforward. It's a very simple game overall. So, you know, if you're looking for something intricate or complex, this game is not really that. Uh, but yeah, you, you'll stumble across a ton of these quests. You go into these areas. It's a side-scroller RPG. So combat-wise, you know, it sort of reminded me of Sakuna of Rice and Ruin, uh, which was a couple of years ago, uh, or, you know, a number of other side-scroller RPG games with a focus on combat. However, the combat part of the game, I don't know if it's the worst part of the game, but it's like maybe the most uninteresting it's, yeah, it, it it like it only becomes sort of interesting once you start like like filling out your move set because at the very start of the game the only thing you can do is uh, you only play as CGS first uh, two others join you but the only option that you have besides going left and right is just this one basic attack button and, and that like that slashes in front of you uh, and, and that's all you can do at, at first that's like the first like maybe hour of the game I want to say. Yeah, and so you slowly, as you build up, like, for example, the blacksmith, uh, you slowly can upgrade your weapons, and that, along with that, you get new moves. Like, you do get a slight double jump. You get the ability to, like, like do, like, an aerial attack or a downwards kick and other things. But it's never too complex. It's very simple, you know, very, you know, compared to Sakuna and Rice and Ruin. I know that's, like, a different developer and everything. But that game, I felt, was just a bit more... You know, flashy. It was it was more fun to control. There's a lot more cool things you could do, uh, and I'm sure there's other comparisons you can make as well. But yeah, just the combat in this game is not really like the main reason you'd come to it. It's just there. So that's what you do. Yeah, and that's that- uh, the, the like the the main thing that like is like sort of interesting about combat is when you start. Um, getting the additional characters you get uh you know the two characters you can switch between them on the fly with different attack buttons like cj is on square on a playstation controller guru would be triangle and uh, your third party member would be on circle and uh, like you can just switch between them on the fly pressing those attack buttons and then uh it introduces the system it's like a link multiplier or link attack and like at the very end of like one of your attacks and you switch over to the other character after it It'll do like a flashy blue like switch icon, and they go, they phase into there seamlessly, and you have like a, an attack multiplier for every time you do these link attacks. Yeah, so that's about as interesting as it gets. I mean, I I don't want to say like there's anything inherently broken about how combat works. It's just kind of straightforward. Yeah. Um. So, um, and that's really like we've described ninety five percent of the game is you're doing this these. Like side scroller dungeony areas, there's like a forest, there's a mine, there's the ruins of there's a volcano, and then you do the you know tons of quests. Like as you kill enemies, as you 
break down trees or mine rocks, you get ores and whatnot, and they increase in rarity. So, you know, the later quest you need the gold ore versus the silver ore or whatnot. And there is a baseline sort of satisfaction to seeing the town grow. To I was actually going to ask know? about that. Like you described these as like straightforward combat, simple quests, but is there any sort of like, sometimes it can kind of scratch a certain itch when you're like tearing up the certain parts of the town or like you, you mentioned this one person uh, like needed something for their, I think you said bakery uh, or shop and restaurant, yeah. restaurant. Yeah. And like, is, is there enough interest, interesting progression in terms of like, I'm motivated to help these people out I, and get their so things. For me, when I was playing through this game, like I, it does, it did scratch an itch. of just like, I just wanted to find like a set, like a simple comfy RPG. And that's what I'll get that I give you. It's like, it's just, it's very, very simple. And it's just like, but it's comfortable as well. And there is a certain satisfaction to see the town grow because as you're helping these residents out, you're filling out a stamp card uh, for doing so. And then you'll, there'll be different tiers of the stamp card as you fill them out. It's kind of like when you uh, go to a boba place and then they, they have a stamp card there. And then after you get like like 10 bobas uh, there and you fill out that stamp card, you'll get one for free. And then you'll fill out a new stamp card because you know, you've been going to that boba place so much. Um, and, uh, and for this one, you fill out a stamp card and then you get you advance the tiers like go from bronze to silver to gold, etc. And uh, as as you switch over to that new tier, it actually like kind of changes like the atmosphere of the town to make it more lively. And like there's a new BGM that the town gets like per as you're develop as as you're continually doing these quests and developing and filling out these stamp cards. So you do see a pro- like a like a progression that feels satisfying on that on some level if you're looking for a comfortable simple rpg like if you're willing to accept that's what the game is and you'll see more people like flooding the town as well as you're progressing too so at first there's not a lot of people and then as you you know yeah you develop it more and more people will show up in that town so when you so, go from request to request and adam might be just just now heading into this like is there any like overarching narrative or plot or premise that starts to link them together uh, there, there is a little bit of that. There are definitely like some like re- reoccurring NPCs that have like a narrative uh, through the quest. Uh, not all of them. It's not like super meaningful for the most part. But there are definitely like you know, it's like oh, this quest has this character. Like you know, they're 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 asking me for something again. What's going on with them? And there's relations between these NPCs sometimes. Like you know, you might be rescuing someone's daughter, and then like that, that and then later on, that daughter might uh, need your help to like get something for her mother. I don't. I kind of like the idea of a kind of a more down to earth, almost slice of life ish story like that. At least in terms of the uh, townspeople. Okay, so one one kind of selling point to this game is that it introduces a handful of characters that will appear in Hundred Heroes. Uh, for those who are not familiar with Suikoden. Suikoden games have specifically 108 characters. They're not all battle characters, but they're all like characters that you recruit in Suikoden games. And some of them like, or actually a lot of them hang out your base and you have like a base building mechanic where like they have different functions that they do or whatnot. And then a handful of them, actually quite a bit of them as well, join in battle. So there are a lot of characters. So one one selling point to Rising is that they're going to introduce, you know, I think it's like 10 of them. Uh, that you'll see again in the next game. They're not going to be the main characters, but they'll be part of the 100. Um, so it's not 108 in this case, it's 100, because it's not a Suikoden game, it's just you know a follow-up. So you have your main three characters, CJ, Isha, and, and, and Guru, and then there's seven characters that you meet in the town. 
you can tell that these characters are the like quote important ones because they have portraits and some of them have really great designs there's like uh there's a trader who is a who is an alligator and like a cowboy hat his name is hogan he's very polite. Uh, uh, when i was reading your review and you said like gator trader like does he trade in gators oh no he is a gator <laughs> yes I, there's a there's like a there's like an appraisal person who is like a bird like a parakeet of some sort wearing like a suit with the uh it's like a tuxedo almost with the like i don't i don't know what you call it uh, yeah well he's got a monocle he's also got like that sort of like tail of the suit the suit tail or whatever you call that mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah he's a great design there's a magical girl wannabe yeah uh, the, uh, she's not wannabe she is a magical girl <laughs> true um uh, i think it's sort of funny how the game has like there's a slight talk about how magic works in the game and then there's like the magical girl that also has magic but it's different yeah. Um, anyways, um, and, and there's and, a couple and, other characters too. Not, not and, to mention, with all your party members, Guru, Guru is a literally a kangaroo with like a, a makeshift eye patch that's like the wrapped with bandages to make that eye patch, and he wields like a like a really big like Buster sword on his back. So it's it, it's really wild with its character designs, and I, I kind of dig it. Yeah, and um, so in terms of like the part of the game that I actually probably enjoyed the most is i think the game is very charming and i do think the localization i did there were a handful of typos but i think the localization is pretty well done so um to me anyway so the game does not have voice acting at all it's all text uh which is you know totally fine by me the original few suikoden games didn't have voice acting and i feel like the characters do a lot of their personality does come out pretty well in terms of how they speak like CJ is like not very sophisticated, not unintelligent, but, you know, comes from sort of this nomadic uh, background of sorts. So she she's very energetic, uh, kind of gung ho about everything. Guru, Guru is kind of he's very sarcastic um, and the way he speaks is a little bit more terse and it really comes through. And then Isha is more like straight laced, very proper. She grew up in her room reading books. And I think like the localization did a pretty good job at having these characters all quote sound different despite not hearing them um so you know i thought that element of the game was promising for you know 100 heroes if they stick with the same localization process there and it's got a lot of charm uh with the game it does admittedly take a while to get going you you spend about the first half of the game kind of doing the fetch quests so there's like not really much of a story other than let's build the town but then it does eventually come into play and um, I wouldn't say it's like a cliffhanger at the end, but at the end of this game, uh, not to spoil anything, of course, it does leave some plot threads open for the events that have taken place here, presumably to follow up on them later in 100 Heroes. Um, again, not really like a cliffhanger, but it's not like a closed loop. So I think in that regard, it's fortunate. I, the way I put it is that it's kind of unfortunate that, that the gameplay elements of this game are probably its weakest points weakest points because you know it's not as fun to play as it could have been but it's also sort of fortunate in that the game that rising is meant to foretell it's not going to play anything like this one so any of the any of the weaknesses in the gameplay here will presumably not transfer over because 100 heroes is going to be a totally different it's going to be more traditional so in that sense i hope you know the charm that i've got that i felt from this game and maybe some of the quality and like the writing and the localization that'll come through hopefully in the follow-up. 
I also appreciate that like navigating it is like painless for the most part. It's a, it has a very very flexible uh, fast travel system, where like you can just get to like any place like within seconds, if not instantly. Uh, like and, and it's good at like marking things that like like hey, you have to go retrieve this unique item at this place for this quest, and like it'll show you on the map where that item is if you've already uncovered it on that on the map. So it's it's pretty like a pretty painless game to play uh, in that regard. Um, I, I think my one complaint when it comes to like navigation is I wish there was like a like a run button or a dash button um, for when you're navigating the, the town to like complete these quests because it, even though like you go in the right like like uh, section of the map they might be like at the other end of that that room in the map and you have to like kind of slowly like kind of run over to them to complete it which is it's it, it's a small complaint but like it's very noticeable once you do a shitload of quests again and again. So if I was the type of person that was more interested in 100 Heroes, and I hear you talk about this as like a lead-in game or whatever, and this is a hard question to ask or answer because obviously 100 Heroes is not out. We don't even know how good it is. Um, but would you suggest, do you get enough from your experience playing this game that you say like it really sets up that you want to learn more, that you want to hear more stories in this universe, that you really suggest playing this if you have any interest in 100 Heroes? I mean, it, I would say that it's it's not a very long game, so you know that. How long did it take like, you to beat? I think it's like it was about roughly fifteen hours. You know. Yeah, give or take. Yeah, I I, I would say like I don't say this like this this game is like I, it doesn't seem super essential for a hundred heroes. If you didn't like, you might like I imagine for hundred heroes like you might see like a cameo from like one of the main characters, if not you know all of them there, but. It, it like it's like a very small scope story about this town and about the 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 plot behind you know CJ and Isha and how Garu gets involved in it. Like, it, but it's a very small scope story. I don't think it'll have like super large implications for like you know what Hundred Heroes is what will be all about. It might like get touched upon in Hundred Heroes, but I don't think it's going to be you know a, a major major factor in, in it. So it's more just like becoming familiar with some of these characters and being like oh yeah i interacted with this alligator trader uh yeah. in rising and less about like i need to know what happened in this game in order to make sense of the uh the next one and well, uh, there might that... be there might be a few small things just like for example i'm not going to spoil this at all but there's like you know a storyline around isha that could very well be followed up on in the next game even though she's not a main character and you know. but, but but I don't I, but I don't think the game will leave you out, out there to dry and be like oh you're fucked if you didn't yeah like, it's it's not it's not like say for a most recent example of media like you say you will go watch a new Doctor Strange film and it's like oh you didn't go watch WandaVision well you're kind of le- left out here to dry if you if you didn't go watch that show because while that like movie will like lightly 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 like explain it it won't really you won't really get like the severe like impact that show had in relation to the events that transpire in that film uh, i i don't think that'll be that that'll be a similar case for rising to 100 heroes i don't think like i don't think if you walk into 100 heroes i don't think that like if you didn't play rising you'd be like and it's a it's a, it's a lower price game isn't it 15 dollars or is it 20 15 
right. So I, I, that seems like it all seems to kind of jive in terms of like it's a lower price game. It's a shorter experience. It's a nice appetizer because if you're interested in 100 Heroes, you've backed it, let's say, but you just want to kind of get an introduction to the world and characters. You've got Rising here and it's not going to be this essential thing. It's not homework. That, oh, I got to play this before 100 Heroes or else I'm going to be lost. Uh, and obviously we're saying this with some conjectures about 100 Heroes because obviously the game's not out till next year. But I don't know, based on everything you're describing and uh, the vibe that I'm getting, it seems like they've struck a good balance of kind of what this game is designed to be in terms of just being literally almost an appetizer. Well, I don't know why I said literally there, of being an appetizer metaphorically uh, for the main experience next year. Any other final uh, concluding thoughts on um, Aiden Chronicle Rising? We do obviously, of course, have the uh, written review up on the site. That's it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's all I really have to say about it. it, it it's a like I said, like if you're the type of player that just wants to look for something very simple and, and like has that comfortable feeling, go, go check it out. It's 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 not it's not a bad game, I'd say. It it is like on the simple side, but that's okay sometimes. I think you just have to have like the right mindset going in. That yeah. That's like, I think I think my, in my concluding remarks in my review, I say something along the lines like, if this game was a standalone product it you know it'd be average uh but you kind of going into knowing that it's like a companion game for a larger project that it's introducing you know and here it does have an intentionally subdued scope and budget then you you'll, you can enjoy it more if you kind of understand how it's positioning itself yeah context is everything like if this was like the 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 main kickstarter project then we'd be having a different conversation so give that a read. It's up on the site, Aiden Chronicle Rising. Since it is a shorter game, I might try to pick this up and just kind of knock it out. The last review that we have up on the site from the last week is one that I'm going to have to hand it off to Josh to describe uh, exactly what this game is. And that is The Centennial Case, A Shijima Story. So this is an FMV game from the same developer as 428. This is uh, like the like the director of this is the worked on 428. But like the, ah, okay. the development, the development studio is not from them. Uh, it's actually by hand, and that, that was the studio behind Neo: The World Ends with You, and this is published by Square Enix. It's not, so Josh, it's not the same development staff, but so but it has some of the same talent behind it. But so tell right. me about what what exactly is the Centennial Case, a Shijima story. So Centennial Case is like you mentioned, it is a, a full blown FMV game, high budget FMV game, which you know we don't get a lot. It's usually from like independent developers or smaller scope uh, studios, um, and it is like a, a Japanese mystery adventure uh, game, and it, it is uh, very fascinating. Uh, First, the setup let's, let's for... start high level because we're we're a little bit older, and when I say FMV game, I have a, an idea of what that means. But right. describe to me like what what when I say that or when you say that like when you're playing this game, what does that mean? How is it framed? Like what are you looking at when you're playing through this? Uh, FMV stands for full motion video, and uh, all of, like uh, like I say, ninety nine percent of this game is live action cutscenes. That's what a lot of it is. It's uh, the cutscenes are letterboxed. It's kind of presented like a movie. And uh, at the, much of the game is uh, watching through scenes uh, of live action actors interacting with one another. And throughout their interactions, you kind of get uh, clues uh, and information about the characters, like basic information about the characters that you're interacting with. So that, that's what like the main thrust of the game is. The the game is 
starts out uh, with this uh, best-selling mystery novelist, Haruka, um, who is like at this signing session for her uh, novel, Killer DNA, and she's uh, alongside her editor, Akira, and uh, her the science consultant of that uh, novel, uh, Eiji, and he works in the... Uh, he's a medical researcher. And the AG comes from the Shijima family. And uh, obviously, being part of the title, they're, they're, they have a very, very significant role in the game. Uh, after, after the sighting session, uh, AG goes up to Akira and Haruka, and he's like, can you do me a favor? Um, can you... Uh, my, my family, the Shijimas, are having this succession ceremony that happens once in a century, and I want you to be there. Um, because you know, we trust them that they have a working relationship, and uh, because he, he wants them to investigate um, two primary things about it. Um, the Shijimas uh, supposedly are like the, the safekeepers of this uh, fruit of eternal youth, and supposedly, if this fruit exists, if you eat it, it'll make you ageless, you no longer age, you're effectively immortal. Um, and two. Uh, the location uh, of the succession so- uh, ceremony for the Shijimas is under this big cherry blossom tree uh, at, the, at their ba- you know at their backyard, and obviously it's a big big backyard, it's like a forest. Um, and underneath this cherry blossom tree are their skeletal remains. Uh, underneath it, no one knows who it belongs to. They just know that it's there, and that that those skeletal remains. Are sort of a reminder that the Shijimas are uh, kind of a cursed family because they've been suffering uh, a death of the family uh, every de- almost every decade for like the past fifty years, but also has been suffering deaths even beyond that up to a hundred years back. So there's the main setup for the mystery of. Like, I just, just want to make sure I have this. Har- Haruko is the novelist. Ag is this introductory member of the Shijima family and who is Akira? Akira is uh, Haruka's editor. Gotcha. Yeah. So you uh the they visit the you know uh they, they visit their estate, the Shijima estate, and um you know you get to you, you get the introductions with uh Eiji's family. You have uh his mom, uh the, the Shijima family maid, his dad, his two brothers, uh, their gardener, and um the the really fascinating thing about the the centennial case is that the the story isn't just about the shijimas of the present day. Do you actually get uh, transported? No, you don't get transported. But as Haruka is investigating the the family's history, she comes upon like old manuscripts that uh, tell stories of the shijima family uh, back then. Like uh, the, there were. Um, Shijima family members, their ancestors wrote down manuscripts on like events that tra- uh, significant events that transpired in this family. So, like the very first chapter of the game, no spoilers, obviously, is uh, Haruka reads a manuscript uh, from a hundred years back uh, during the Taisho era uh, of an, a private auction that happened uh, where uh, Yoshino Shijima, one of the ancestors of the Shijima family, participated in, and in this. Uh, private auction that that fruit of eternal youth was there, um, so and she reenacts that the whole game reenacts that with you know full FMV 
cutscenes. But the the neat thing about this is you, it, it's all Taisho era style um, scenes. So you get like Taisho era outfits. Uh, the 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 state of the Shijima house or the 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 private auction that where this is being held at, uh, like it's decorated in Taisho era uh, style props and like and, and like you know the way that it's, uh, the scene. Do they do anything? As I was actually going to ask, like, do they do anything with like the post processing or the coloring to yes, like they, they, designate they that so, it's so? And, and the, when they're setting up the Taisho era like setting and like and all. Like subsequent chapters that like that may deal with different time periods. You have a brief like black and white film that montage that kind of briefly explains like the era that Japan was going through to kind of set it up. And then like in that first chapter, like you'll have like very strong like saturations of the color, especially like when it comes to like pink or red to kind of illustrate that you know that's how the Taisho era was characterized uh you know in the modern day like when you think about taisho era and it reflects on that so the like the coloring between like present day and that taisho era first chapter are very different but in a very like it's it, it's not like explained it's just like it's you can tell when you see it and it's very I, I, cool I, I actually kind of like that that's not explained it's just a very kind of obvious unwritten unvocalized verbal not verbal visual just identifier saying like it's it's obvious why they designed it that way and yeah. help to designate and kind of help the the reader and the player keep track of what time period they're in mm -hmm. and also so, not uh, in a hokey way of just making like grayscale or something like that right yeah it's a, it's very very well done so the the main like flow of the game is when once you get to a chapter you'll see these events play out so like in the first chapter you'll see um there's a private auction going out you see how yoshino uh works with uh, a character named josui to kind of get into that auction house because she wasn't invited. Um, along, uh, so you know, as that's going on, all of a sudden, uh, one of the participants in this private auction is murdered, uh, and you're like, "What's going on? Like, what in the world happened?" You you, you find you find the the you know she she's been murdered somewhere uh, in, in this private auction, and you it's up to you to sort of piece together what happened. So a lot of the 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 preliminary like investigation is done for you presented as fmv cutscenes where um you first you see the state of the body where it was located and you get the alibis of the people relevant parties uh in there and uh, as you as you're going through this like like first phase let's say you kind of have like these uh some multiple choices on like you know how you react what you say to people but you know that that's more for flavor, not necessarily to like immediately like impact the outcome right away. So as you're as you go through that and you finish that up, and it's time to literally piece the puzzles uh, together on like what is going on, you're brought into Haruka's mind uh, for this to kind of piece together because obviously Haruka is the one reading it, and then you go to like the mind of like the character she's reenacting. So in this case, it'd be Yoshino. Um, and it's it it's visualized as sort of a a pathway of hexagons, like a like the like clusters of hexagons that form a pathway in her mind. And uh, this is this is where it sort of gets weird as I'm describing it, but well, I'll, I'll try my best. Um, one of these hexagons on this pathway at first, or several of these hexagons, like along this pathway, are are red hexagons, and they all have a question. 
So I, the example I give in my review is, you know, um, where, where, where was this person killed? Um, and that would be like the red hexagon asking that question. It's a mystery. Um, you know, and obviously you, you have a grander case to solve, but along that, along that way, you have several mysteries to kind of think about uh, before you get to make a conclusion about what happened. Um, so this red hexagon, the, let's say for the example, is surrounded by or linked to two other gray hexagons in it. And uh, on the screen where you're like kind of doing this gameplay inside Haruka's mind, there will be clues that you picked up automatically as as you were doing that uh, initial investigation phase, where there'll be like yellow hexagons on the side, and you can like drag and drop them into that though that pathway. But you have to get you have to get the right clue in the right slot for it. So let's say the the two clues uh, that would uh, to this like question is maybe like they were murdered in the room. Uh, uh, and then that that would be like how would you reach that uh um hypothesis well in the, in in your invest investigation you saw that there was a pool of blood in the room uh by by the by the dead body so when you link link that clue of like there was a pool of blood in the room to where was this person killed you know you make a hypothesis after you correctly slot that in and that that leads you to the hypothesis of oh this person was killed in the room because how do you, do you it, have to gather that evidence like the, I'm, I'm the, thinking like i'm thinking like uh ace attorney where you're like scouring a, a cg image and you're trying to find clues or is there is there any, a gameplay like that where you're trying to gather like these evidence that you can slot into these gray hexagons so a lot of the legwork is done for you when, once you reach that uh uh like haruka's mind uh section the those clues are automatically gathered for you so there's no missable clues uh, once you get to that section, you just have to find the the correct clue in that, and it's not it's not so much trial and error in this. You don't because you you'll have a lot of clues to choose from, but like, but every single hexagon has a distinct pattern at one side of that hexagon that'll be uh, that'll give away where where it's it is on the on the pathway because those red hexagons also have those same unique patterns on the the opposing side. So what you have to do is find that yellow clue hexagon that has that distinct pattern and match it up to that red hexagon's pattern so they're facing each other. So it's it, it set, like describing it might be like more complicated than what it actually is. It's it's quite simple once you see it. But what once you link but you know all the clues are gathered for you and once you link the, those clues together They'll form hypothesis, uh, you know. So, so like, it's, more, it's, it, it's more along the lines of that you have a certain set of pieces of evidence or clues given to you, but as you iterate through your hypotheses, they can you only find there's only one solution that fits them all together in the proper way. Yeah, like you'll 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 conjure up a lot of hypotheses as you're doing it. So, like say like another clue to this question would be like, oh, there were blood splatters on the hallway. Uh, you know, and that could be another possible thing of like if and you, then and then you say, well, if they died in the room, why is there blood in the hallway? Well, not, not necessarily because those are two separate like things. You're, you're you're thinking about possibilities at this point, so you're not you're not correlating right away that like, oh, if this uh, body was in the room or they they must have been murdered there, then what does the blood splatters mean? 
So like a separate clue of the blood splatters the hallway and you link it up to that um to that mystery of where was this person killed. If you link those up, the hypothesis the simple hypothesis you make uh from that totally separate from the other hypothesis that we made is oh the 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 person must have been killed outside the room um you know so those are two opposing hypotheses that you made and you use those two clues to arrive at them now when you make those hypotheses you might have other mysteries that you unveil along the way of like okay if this person was killed in the room what are some other clues that could serve as evidence for that uh to to reach that conclusion so you'll find you'll uncover and make more hypotheses hypotheses that support whether that body was killed in the room and then you'll find other hypotheses that would that would support whether that body was killed outside of the room and that's because you've got you've got two opposing hypotheses and now you've got mm -hmm. to find corroborating or substantiating evidence for one or the other yes so like this game really surfaces like the like the 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 process of deductive reasoning uh, more so than actually doing the like, detective legwork to like find clues that 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 process is already done for you what this what this game really surfaces is is the process of deductive reasoning uh in that respect and while i love almost everything about the game what i just described to you is the weakest part of it and the thing that really like kills this game for me but like because like this whole process is can get pretty lengthy up to like 50 to 20 minutes maybe even more in uh later later chapters as you're like get more and more elaborate uh murder mysteries and like it's just you're just solving a like a simple like puzzle hexagon puzzle to like get these hypotheses and why i understand and appreciate the intent uh of it the actual like process of like what you're doing as the player playing a video game it gets really pretty dull and tedious because you're just kind of doing this again and again like making more hypotheses to eventually you know get like a like a, a an end point of like okay find the truth now that you find you found these hypotheses um you know and after after that once you start getting once you start solving the case from there on all the hypotheses that you made serve as like multiple choice selections um for for you know when it's time to uh unravel the case to everyone you know you identify who the killer is you identify how they did it um sometimes you you identify why they killed it but the, not, not necessarily it depends on the context of, uh, of the murder mystery but you definitely get it the who done it and where done it and how they did it um so is that, that, is, that is that like the concluding part of each chapter it it pretty much is. There is a certain like late game chapter that really switches things up that I wish more elements of that chapter that it introduced was more prevalent or the some of those elements are more prevalent in those earlier chapters. Like how like it, it really switched things up and it was like a really big surprise. And I was like, man, this game could have been really fucking cool. Uh a, a lot more cooler than it already is if you just took more of those elements from that later game chapter. So I I really really adore it, um, but I understand that it's a very incredibly niche genre, and it, it takes a very certain acquired taste to like appreciate this kind of like game because it's like it's it's one of those games that say I would recommend playing this, but I would have like a list like prerequisites like kind of get to know what you're getting yourself into um, when you're going into these types of games because 
you'll be like, why don't I just watch a movie then if, I, if I'm just playing this type of game? It's like, it's not, it's not like I understand that mindset, but it's not really putting you in the shoes of a detective and more so the spectator if you're doing that. Um, and uh, I, it's, it's great. It's fantastic. The, the, this, the soundtrack for Centennial Case has a, has a really big shot of being like my favorite OST this year. I don't know yet. Depends on what other stuff comes out, you know, especially Xenoblade. Um, but it has a really, really strong soundtrack. Um, How long did it take yeah. you to finish? About 16 hours, give or take. Um, there's no in-game timer, so I have to like kind of go through recorded footage. It's kind of make an educated guess about how long it took, but it's around that um, time frame. Um, and also, just a final thing that like really caught me off guard was after after the credits rolled. Um, there's a post-credits epilogue that's pretty lengthy, and the what happens in it and the things that you learn, I would say, is it's it's kind of like metal gear solid four <laughs> in that respect um i won't say anything more aside from that it's it's crazy it's crazy um so if i and, haven't played metal gear solid four i just have to go with trust me it's crazy i mean you're, you're just gonna have to like you, you just have to witness for yourself like uh if you play it and you get to that epilogue and you're like okay that's time to see what's going on um like you, you don't even know it's an epilogue until like you I won't say how you access it, but you won't even know it's the epilogue until like you're in it already. Um, but it's it's so cool. I just this game quite possibly could have been like maybe top three games of the years for me um, if it wasn't for its its gameplay sections, which is a real bummer. Like everything about this game is really really good, especially. Uh, in the FMG, FMV game space, it is like it's amazing, but the, there's just a few elements about it that just make it a bit of a chore to play, and it breaks my heart. So Josh, of course, has his written review very in depth on the Centennial Case, the Shijima story about the how the gameplay is and his thoughts on the story and things like that, with no spoilers, right? Yeah, no, just no spoilers. So, so go ahead and give that a read. And that covers the slate of reviews that have been up on the site uh, in the last week. So I think that's four of them plus James's feature. So plenty to look at if you're interested in any of those games that we talked about. Of course, I talked about how I finished my uh, Weird West review. And then uh, because I was had a gap, I do want to get to Aiden Chronicles Rising. But we had some news this week. We had a Capcom digital event about the upcoming Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak. And we'll talk about the uh, news that came out of that event uh, just very shortly. But as a kind of a preparation for that, I decided to finally get put some actual time into Monster Hunter Rise. I didn't play it outside of a demo when I originally came to Switch. When it came to PC, I didn't really have time for it. I told myself I'd get back to it later. Well, now I find like, all right, I got a month or so until Sunbreak comes out. I want to uh, take some time to play through Monster Hunter Rise. So that's basically been my uh, last week. And then I know that James has also been playing it because he did play the Switch version. But since Sunbreak is having the uh, concurrent release for Switch and PC without being crossplay, uh, I know James wanted to uh, kind of get his PC file in a good place for uh, the Sunbreak expansion. So... In case you haven't listened to the podcast previously, my history with Monster Hunter is that I put a ton of time into World, and that's it. So I am not really a veteran. Uh, most of my 
impressions from Monster Hunter Rise are basically going to be comparing it to World. The One of the things that I made a decision on early on was when I was playing Monster Hunter World, I used a longsword. Now I'm trying to use a switch axe. So that basically makes it play like almost like a completely different game already. I've never really been one to like be very good at changing it up in the middle of a game. So I figured, hey, new game, I'll try a new, uh, a new weapon type. Uh, obviously, I've enjoyed the uh, kind of like the Japanese yokai inspired like setting and story. The story is obviously not that important, but seeing all these new monsters and I'm kind of going through since James has played a ton more Monster Hunter than I am. And it also kind of interestingly looping in Adam a bit because he's had the experience playing um, Monster Hunter stories. And like, is Alumatron or Almutron uh, a new character? Is Magnamalo a new a new monster? Like all the ones that are new to this game because they're yokai inspired. Abushi uh, and some of the uh, dragons and like the serpent dragons, I believe, are new. Um, and all this stuff is stuff that's been true from the base game, but it's just been kind of fun to experience it uh, because most of Monster Hunter World's monsters are like overly represented by wyverns and dragons. So it's been fun to fight bears and uh birds and lizards and things like that to a higher extent here but i did not realize that i was gonna miss the clutch claw so much i really don't know if i like the the wire bugs quite as much and not having the slinger to have like the projectile options for like stunning oh thank and things god like that. it's not just me oh thank <laughs> god i yeah I, i'm gonna i'm gonna I, i'm gonna say something bad i I don't like the clutch claw. I'm glad it was gone. I'm gone from rise, but I mean, like the the wire bug is kind of has been growing. Eh, me too. I mean, it's okay, but I I would I hated the clutch claw by the end of world uh, of Iceborne. I I prefer it to the way that uh, mounting monsters works in uh, rise because the fact that you if you want to be optimal, you have to like steer and ram a monster into a wall three times it's like that's just i, I like i i don't like the force mounting in uh in rise and that, we'll get to that in sun the, the sunbreak news but I, i'm glad that's getting phased out on the force mounting i hate it what i hate about the clutch claw by the end of iceboard was the tenderize mechanic and like how you had to just you were forced to clutch claw to actually deal damage to a monster because you had to like expose their parts and like it took forever. It made hunts way longer than they needed to be. Nice morning. And then there was there was a lot of weird like design mechanics around that where it's like, well, you only need so much affinity or whatever as long as you hit a weak point that's been tenderized and yeah. things like that. But I did, I think, like the mounting mechanic more in world because in world it was kind of like this hidden meter where and maybe people who have studied this more thoroughly can state it more accurately but uh it was every time you hit a monster while airborne you kind of chip away at this hidden meter where eventually you would just unknowingly mount them so it kind of certain weapons were better at mounting than others the insect glaive users it seemed like one of their primary goals was try to mount the monster where here it feels like the the silk bind mechanic it just feels like the weapon type doesn't matter nearly as much and trying to hit monsters while airborne doesn't really matter nearly as much. Just eventually you'll get the option to press B or swing at the monster once and then you'll immediately mount them. And I don't know, it's just a lot less interesting. Um, I thought it was kind of surprising that some of the things that were stripped out of world, like I remember being in the, the frost caverns in rise and being like, wait, don't I need a hot drink? Like, no, I guess not. Like, 
that doesn't exist. Yeah, anymore. Yeah, a, 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 lot, a lot of a lot of like world and rise, and especially rise, like got very much streamlined. Like I, I, I just I, I had a revelation when I was like replaying MH uh, Monster Hunter GU in January of like, wow, I missed not having like all these like weird mechanics like clutch plot and wire bug, and like I kind of missed like just very simple old school Monster Hunter. And like I know that makes me sound like a crazy person, but it was something very comforting of like just having how old school Monster Hunter worked. <laughs> I almost feel kind of like an imposter when I'm no, like, no. Oh, I because because like I'm like oh I miss the hot and cold drink or whatever, and then uh, James could be like, well, back in my day we had paintballs and or, or things like that. And I'm like, well, I, I don't, I never. That sounds tedious to me. So maybe in a few iterations, uh, having hot and cold drinks will sound tedious or things like that, or having these different mounting mechanics. Uh, also, I am surprised. I don't know if it worked like this in other games, but I really still like uh, most most things about the gearing system, about the decoration system, are pretty much in line with what they were in World, with maybe some slight tweaks. The pedal laces, I bet, I think are a bit weird. It feels just like free stats. Um, but one thing that I thought that it seems so obtuse, almost feels like it was designed by a different company, is this talisman thing. The fact that it's <laughs> that it's just like a lottery where it's like you can put in so the talisman is just a piece of gear that you wear on your neck and you go to the shop owner and you basically say like i will give you basically monster parts of a certain point value and i will kind of and there's a few different versions but i will uh, one of the versions that you specify that a skill that you want and you give them enough points and they're like all right do a quest or two and come back and you'll get a random talisman back it might be the uh, skill you want it might not be and it's literally just like rolling through rng dice rolls to try to get what you want and not only that but i I was trying to figure out some of the math behind this one last thing but this is kind of what made me roll my eyes like apparently there's like google sheets where some of the some of your like chances of getting certain things is like decided decided upon upon your account creation like things that people are trying to like back calculate the math behind the decision making of the dice rolls i'm just like wow like any other piece of gear, I can just get the parts I need and craft my legs or boots. But with talismans, it's just like, good luck. Well, yeah, good. because it's supposed to be like extra min-maxing, and that's why decorations are more important. It's like the uh, the talismans, or as they were called in previous games, charms, are basically just for an additional like one or two skills. And it's really just meant to be the, the end game appeal is uh, trying to get those. Um, it could have been worse. I don't think Rise is, uh, um, char- well, Talisman tables or Charm tables are locked upon account account creation. I don't think so, because they made that mistake with Monster Hunter 3 Ultimate. And, oh boy. Oh, there was no good. <laughs> yeah, there was these cursed Charm tables. So as soon as you started the game, you wanted to send out, um... Uh, a fishing expedition in the main hub and then change your system's clock because by doing that and checking the results after a certain time, you can actually calculate what charm table you were on. Do you want to go back remind, to that, Brian? It kind of reminds <laughs> me of old Pokemon IV determination where you'd have to like record what your Pokemon starting stats were, figure out what their nature was, level them up a couple times or something like that, and then figure out where their stats are. And you like back, you put, you put in these numbers in a calculator. And like, these are your Pokemon's IVs. 
And then you, you learn only after doing that exercise whether your Pokemon was good or not. That's kind of what it sounds like. Is your account good in a good place or do you want to restart? But yeah, you, you are right, James, that it is like. So what I wanted is I wanted to get a I wanted to get a talisman that had, I believe, like a critical boost uh, attribute on it and a two gems, a two a two star gem slot or whatever you call it but i eventually got a talisman that had a water boost on it i didn't i don't use water weapons i don't need that at all but it has two gem slots one three and one two and i'm like well i guess i could just i call them gems instead of decorations i guess sorry uh but i'm like i guess i can just work with this i can just use these two gem slots to slot what i need because then you can craft i do like the fact that you can craft decorations directly because that's another like quality of life thing because in world yeah a lot of the decorations were uh, you'd get like a category of decoration from a from a quest, and then you'd have to like identify it to figure out what you actually rolled. And certain like event quests, I remember there was like an event quest with a giant Jagras and one with a a lava Seoth that were more like this. This the whole point of this quest is to give you a whole bunch of decorations, which is basically just giving you a lot more dice roll opportunities to get the one you actually want. And if you actually got like an attack up or a, a critical eye or whatever, you're like hooray! You know that that was more the RNG in that game. Where in this game, it's like yeah. Dec- de- decoration crafting is really straightforward. Just getting the, the, the talismans to slot them in is a little bit more RNG. So overall, if it's it, less RNG. Yeah, if it helps, uh, Brian, it's funny, but Monster Hunter World is the only one where the RNG is the decorations instead of charms slash talismans. Huh. So Monster Hunter Rise isn't a change. It's just the developers that were working on Rise kept the status quo. So, yeah. How does that feel? More of a more of a reversion. <laughs> but what what do you th- what do you think about the game? Just like overall, like outside of like gearing uh, and whatnot, like just the overall flow of the game. Uh, I mean, I ended up becoming almost like a no lifer in Monster Hunter World. I kept the date on all of the event quests. Uh, I didn't one hundred percent the crowns. That's where I kind of like called. That's where I drew the line. But pretty much everything else in that game, I did. Uh, so when I'm uh, going through Rise, uh, admittedly, there's a part of me that like a lot of the monsters are carried over. A lot of their animations are borrowed, which is obviously fine. But I'm kind of like, all right, I don't want to. I feel like I just did this in, in some ways. I'm like, OK, I don't want to go in as hard as I did. Uh, that's why I really enjoyed the fights with like Ibushi and what was the other one? Narka? The Narva. Thunder one. Yeah. Narva, yeah. And like because those fights were a little bit different. Um the uh, the thunder serpent fight it involved a lot of like artillery and things like that in a way that didn't feel too gimmicky compared to the rampage quest i'll get to those in a later the uh the thunder serpent fight i thought was a really cool like arena and it had it, it was a little bit gimmicky yes but not to a point where it was overbearing where it felt like my build no longer mattered um i really do like the higher variety of monsters it's really cool like uh just to have like even like the spider, the Rachna spider, and the um, Rachna Rachnakadaki. Yeah, there's there's just a lot more, and like the the bears, like the Goss Morag or whatever his Goss, name is. Yeah, or, Goss Morag is my favorite monster in that game. I love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just the variety is a lot more interesting, um, and it's almost kind of fun where it's like, oh, Kushala Diora, I remember you, you jackass, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> um, and uh, I do like the um, just the aesthetic in general. Uh, the game kind of looks a little bit different because it was scaled up from a Switch original game. Uh, so uh, there's something about the game that's a little bit more colorful, maybe a little bit more cartoony, which is kind of fun. Um, 
I the rampages are weird. They they feel like spectacles that I don't know that they the, in the rampages that's the part of the game where you have multiple monsters like basically running at your gates and you're trying to stop them keep them out of town and you build up like these almost like this tower defense sort of like cannons and artillery and you can call in like npcs from the city and, and frequently to help you out and it's it's in those parts of the games where it feels like your build doesn't nearly matter quite as much because you're using the artillery and then you get this um gong i forget what it's called that basically boosts all your stats where it's like, all right, now and all your stats are boosted, go in and, you know, just mop them up and things like that. And of course, you still got to play well. And of course, there's like still a little bit of strategy to it, but a lot less. It just feels more like chaos and noise compared to Monster Hunter fights, like where it's four hunters on one monster, where it feels a lot more deliberate and a lot more skill comes into play a lot more significantly. Um, so I don't hate them, but I really don't. Like, I've only ever done them, the ones that have been required of me. And I guess there's a whole series of like rampage weapons and maybe armor that gives you that comes from uh, doing those types of quests specifically. And I'm like, nope, I'm gonna avoid those. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I would recommend for anyone's sanity to just probably just uh, make a make use of what you can because all of the stuff that you get in Rise now are just gonna be phased out very very soon in Sunbreak. Yeah, so. that's one thing. I, I don't want to like spend too much time like looking up what is the meta build for this and grind it all out because obviously it's all gonna be tiered up in a. Uh, in the Sunbreak expansion. Uh, let's see. The the last thing... Do I have a last thing? I guess uh, Monster Hunter World, I really didn't care about, care about the story too much here. I don't care about the story too much. I think that's pretty typical. Basically, the story is all about, like, why are the monsters rampaging? What's causing that? Uh, but it's kind of just take it or leave it. It's enough to motivate the plot, which is kind of all I really needed. It's fine. Um, the buddy system... A lot of it is kind of just the stuff that was in World under a different coat of paint. Uh, James was actually correcting me. I was talking about like what, how the Tail Raiders are now the mercenaries, how the um, the Argosy works slightly differently because it involves the uh, the buddies, which are the Palicos and Palamutes. Oh, that's one thing I want to say. Palamutes are awesome. I think Palicos, the cat assistants, are probably more useful. They have a lot more versatility to them and the tools that they can use. But the fact that I can mount my Palamute anytime for like a speed boost and launch off them i just really enjoy whenever i have to like run on foot any place i'm like god how did i ever do this in world i think iceborne eventually did do like the uh the uh what do they call that the, eventually it introduced a, a mounting mechanic that was sort of similar but to have it on your palamute at all times i thought was uh is really nice yeah, i don't know I it, just, it, it almost fits like the it's hard for me to like remember like oh palamutes weren't in world at all they, they feel like a real real natural fit it's been, it's been weird because I, I I did a lot of palamute palamuting in the original Switch release, and then like I untrained myself in the PC version to like not rely on palamute as much, and just uh, use palicos for like uh, because when I needed mats that like just overall like 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 you said palicos are sort of more useful because they gather mats for you, um, but you know palamutes are just a very fun quality of life. Mm -hmm. I was gonna say I well I almost wanted to say I can't see Palmute's not returning with the next game but on the same but on one hand i feel like i felt the same way about the uh the um palico hunter thing in oh, yeah. uh, in generations ultimate well generations and generations ultimate and that's uh that hasn't returned so it's like who knows uh for uh reference uh brian 
in Generations, Generations Ultimate, you could actually set it so that you could hunt as your uh, Palco. Oh, wow. And it had like a unique moveset and unique abilities. Um, for Generations, it was actually incredibly overpowered. Like you could make a build with uh, boomerangs. And if you set it up right, it was like the most broken combination in the entire game, at least for the uh, base game uh, Generations. So yeah, right now I'm I'm about I'm about thirty hours into Rise. Uh, I I'm about like Hunter rank fifty something. I want to try to at least get to the point where I fight the Crimson Valstrax once or twice and kind of call that like my finish line. Like okay, I'm ready for Sunbreak. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm that far away because it sounds like you can kind of easily boost your. I can kind of grab my teeth and do more Rampage quests because it sounds like those really boost your Hunter rank. Uh, so I'll do oh. a few of those, get my Hunter rank up, fight the Valstrax. Well, actually, there's a uh, an event quest which lets you uh, tackle uh, Crimson Valstrax a bit early if you're up if you're up for that. Oh, oh yeah, that's uh, that's right because 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 the the, the grind to HR 100 is the, the mind numbing. So yeah, I, I forgot they did that. Also, um, what do you call this? You, but you don't need to you don't need to get to HR like. 100 for the Sunbreak. You have to just be HR7, right? I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I just wanted to fight Valstrax and I thought that required 100, but I maybe I just had my. That's the thing because well, obviously. Yeah. 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 No, normally, Valst- Crimson Valstrax is HR100, but the, the event quest that James is mentioning that has a lowered HR requirement. Mm, and, yeah. And that, that's one thing that I that is kind of in the soup for me because I know there was like. The uh, the update that added the Elder Dragons, the like a 2.0 and a 3.0 update that added Valstrax. And I don't know exactly what came in in what order. So some of the stuff is like, I don't know exactly like what I'm what sort of benefit I get that people who played the game at launch didn't quite have. Well, oh, here, I'll be honest. Half the reason why I was fine with uh, switching to PC is that I put all this time into Rise at launch on Switch. And then it's like, oh, yeah. All of that grinding you did doesn't get backported into your hunter rank. You need to uh, do all that grinding again. And I was like, "Fuck off!" Yeah. Um, so I, I, my account's at a good spot, but my my uh, secret to uh, remember, like getting caught up to the game, like remembering its controls, is um, I am HR one thirty nine in that in the Rise PC release. I checked, um, but I never did a single single player story mission. That that, that that part I thought was kind of weird. The, the, the village quests in some ways felt kind of pointless. Not pointless is too strong a word, but it feels like they did they did this weird delineation between hub quest and village quest. I don't know if it really bought you a whole lot. I, I, I love this, Ryan, because World is your first one, and this is just the status quo of Robots oh. Hunter normally. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like let's 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 put it this way. You know how in Rise the village quests are basically just a tutorial? basically yeah that's how it is in every ever monster hunter besides a uh, world <laughs> well i hope you're enjoying this because I, I feel a bit silly because no, like, in world great. it was just like you had like a one quest board and it was delineated between the different styles of quests and it was like everything yeah. is here event quests uh you can find join on to multiplayer quests do the single player story quests well i guess that was the one thing that world allowed in a very cumbersome way it allowed you to join people on story quests as long as they both saw the cutscenes, that was one thing I remember thinking for Iceborne that they just needed to um, address. Even though I guess I didn't know how it worked in previous games, and I remember, oh, what was it? I think it was the Shara Ishvalda cutscene 
in ice where you'll see your party members so they could do it the entire time and they just didn't <laughs> yeah so like and so normally in, in monster hunter world there's like this opening cutscene where your monster your hunter runs into the monster they roar at you and it's like welcome to tigrex or whoever it is and then like once you've seen that cutscene, you can leave your quest and join your friend's quest to both progress the story at least it, I'm, but I because think the sharish volta quest is a two-parter if you get to the second well not the two yeah it's a two-parter because it's normally in the story it's right after the ruiner nor gigante kind of like preview mm-hmm. fight if you go right into it with a with a pre-main like a multiplayer party the cutscene will show all of the people in the party. Yeah, so they and it's could like, do it the entire time. And it's like a bespokely made cutscene. Like it shows all four hunters, each with like a slightly different animation based on you know where they're positioned on the field. Like it's it's not just like four copycats. Like it's a design, it's a this cutscene designed to have up to four players present. So I think whatever follows up world, Monster Hunter Six or whatever, um, if they if they take world's implementation of story, but allow it to be a lot more convenient to play through as a party or as a co-op or whatever, I think that would be a, a good, uh, a good thing to, to shoot for. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's not many things like with monster hunters, the series where, where like, obviously a lot of it is like maintained from one game to the next, but on the other hand, you never really know what direction you're going to take the next game in a series. Like Monster Hunter Tribe was all focused on underwater combat. They completely axed that with four, which was more focused on the uh, is where mounting came in. Then Generations was more of just the same, but then they had the hunting styles. It's like they reinvent themselves all the time in some surprising way. So I'm there's not many things where it's like, oh, I'm sure 100 percent it's going to be like this in the next game. They're going to fix that cutscene shit with Monster Hunter World 2 or 6 because that's like the one thing that unanimously everyone hated. One other thing I... Sorry, go ahead, Josh. I said the, the watch the next mainline monster is going to be like on another planet and it's like going to mm-hmm. like deal with like shifting gravities on like a foreign planet. And it's like, um, yeah, there's the next monster after. It's like, all right. <laughs> One thing I also do like, this will be my last main comment about uh, Rise before going into the Sunbreak news from the week, is the the way that the hub quests work. And maybe, again, this is how it normally works, but I really do like that I can just say, I want to do this quest. I want to do it online. And if, if other people see this, they can join rather than having to do like the flare launching or having to look for like other people who have launched flares. I can just start a quest and have other people just join. And yes, it can be frustrating if someone joins and then carts a couple times. But in general, for most cases, I just really like the emergent gameplay and like almost like the, the emergent storytelling where it's like, oh, wow, I got a hunting horn person just joined me and they're awesome at it. They're giving me all these buffs or, oh, a sword and shield. I, I don't see many of those. That's a rarity. Or, oh, it's another longsword, dude. There he is. That was me last game <laughs> or whatever. I don't know. It's okay. Really... So sword and shield players, you got to believe in Sunbreak. It, it, it'll get you what you need. You got to believe. Well, 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 give me my oils back. <laughs> uh, we'll see. <laughs> All right, so so we'll we'll kind of s- slot in a news bit here after my discussion about my time with Rise so far, and that is because oh, on, before, couple... before before you get there, we have we have a surprise guest that that oh. that, that has been waiting to speak. Has it really a surprise by now? <laughs> well, actually, it, it's actually not a surprise because we actually said Chow is not here; he'll probably join us late. So this is completely expected. It's the antithesis of a surprise. <laughs> But anyways, Hi, hello. Hello. welcome, Chow. Hello, hello. How are you? Great, I feel great. That's good. 
Chell, what have you been playing this week? What have I been playing this week? Uh, I've been just hacking old school consoles, trying to enjoy old games for a, for a moment. Yeah, because old wow. games are better than new games. That's just that's true. <laughs> I mean, if, if they if they weren't good, I mean, they wouldn't sell like the same game like fifty times. I mean, why do we have like five versions of like Final Fantasy VI or something like that? So true, actually. Anyway, what is this? Uh, what, what is this Sunbreak stuff? They they had a new they had a new Sunbreak. Uh, in well, I back. I did not watch this as it was. Uh, was this a live stream or was it yeah. just a up? Was it just a, it, it was like it, a, it was a digital video. event? Yeah, yeah, it was okay. a video, like a time uh, pr- video. So a premiered video, direct style or whatever. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, earlier this week at the time of recording, uh, a few days ago, uh, Capcom had their Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak digital event. We've already known a few things about Sunbreak, like the Garam Golem and the, all the other monsters and a few of the different variants that are showing up. But this was a more all-encompassing uh, stream. And I'll be honest, I didn't watch this because at the time this came out, I only had like two hours in Rise. So a lot of it I wouldn't have like been able to contextualize but i do know that josh watched this i believe james followed up on it and adam being the diligent man he is even though he hasn't played rise also kind of like followed up on this uh so i'll just hand it over to josh like this digital event from a, from a week ago or so de- detailing all the you know all the good bits about the upcoming sunbreak what is your like main takeaway what was the highlight here the big one for a lot of uh old school monster fans is Sergios is back steve is back i'll be um, honest i'm like okay Who's that? Hell yeah. Let me, let me Google I, I, I this. Love, I love Steve. Sergios is like Steve the bird. Yeah, it's like it's like a it's like a spiky uh fanged. I don't know if they, they call it a wyvern, right? I'm not sure, but um yeah, yeah but the it's its main characteristics uh, is you usually find it you know in a desert environment and uh it has like these scales where it can just, which you can like shed and like throw at players essentially. So like it's shedding its skin and, and scales and, and like throwing them at hunters and and there's a lot of attacks a lot of diving attacks that it does and it's uh it's really annoying for hunters because it it's very it frequently um inflicts bleed on on the players and the bleed uh ailment uh for you know a lot of monster hunter veterans is annoying is because once you have bleed you have to stop you you have to like you know cure it right away or if you don't have like the proper thing to cure it you have to stop you have to stop moving for a bit and wait for it to heal for a few seconds because if you if you keep on moving as you're uh as you're bleeding you, it'll take up a big chunk of health as you as you continue to move well actually so, uh so now that i think about it like the bleed is in world but i haven't encountered it in rise yet is it just not in rise right now i i think uh, does anyone inflict bleeds uh james and in, in rise uh, yes adogron Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh, okay, I, have, yeah. I haven't run into Odogaran yet. Is he in Rise? That's right. Yes. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> that's the, uh, that's who that's who I was thinking of from World. So okay, I haven't run into that person yet. Yeah. Then they have you know uh, the announced subspecies for Almadron that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, sort of magma. Almadron's cool. But I don't know. He's a real neat design. He's like a serpenty mud friend. Yeah. Now he's gonna be a serpenty lava friend. <laughs> um, and then you have the Aurora Summonkinth. Uh, so instead of like emitting like you know uh, sleepy gas, it'll have like ice breath and everything. On that, um, one of one of the really really big uh, changes that they also announced in this digital event, aside from the new monsters, is that you they announced the switch skill swap system. That means that 
you can have a whole you can set up a whole set of like switch skills and um uh, the wire uh, what was it called the, the like the wire bug uh, attacks the silk bind attacks yeah and you, why do, and why do they get, call them switch skills i don't know why they call them switch skills <laughs> because like just, I you, thought... switch, you switch between these skills like you switch up it's either one or the other and that's why they're because called switch this, skills. This, is, this is a bit silly but like i i'm playing switchblade for the first time and i thought um, it was like unique to that and like oh no these are just the silk bind attacks like but i guess they're called switch skills because you how it works now is that you have to be at a camp uh, or at the village, and you slot like one of three or four that you can unlock a few, I think, through like side quests or things like that. And they're, they're, they're like the two for um, Switchblade, like there's there's one that is basically like a three hit attack that you have like super armor for that you don't get knocked back. You'll still take damage, but it's useful if you just want to like charge an enemy, you know, have plenty of health. But then, then there's some that use like the element of your weapon. But now you'll have the option of switching between the mid combat there's more you, versatility like, added well, there like like switch skills and silk bite attacks are separate like like mechanics like for example like with hammer like your first switch skills like a, a, a sideways hammer um like attack that's and then um it gets another switch skill. i forgot what that other switch skill was off the top of my head but it like but the it has its own set of silk bite attacks where like you know what what your initial silk bite attack is like swinging into the air and like kind of spinning in the air at like a like a top almost with a hammer and then it gets like another switch skill that um like le uh, or not that switch called silk bite attack that does um another thing so like oh, I, guess, I, I guess i got confused because the one that i like to use for switchblade is a switch skill that uses a wire bug gauge so that, that's why i got confused it's a switch skill that uses one of my wire bugs yeah sorry about that well it's okay it's all right it, the, the 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 terminology and it is uh, not great but now, now in um in sunbreak they'll allow you to like make two sets of them and then you can swap between them at any time in mid combat uh in it so you can have like multiple switch skills and silk bite attacks on you and you can switch to, between them on the fly depending on like you know what what you need for the monster and and certain phases of the monster which is really really cool um because you know it, it's a lot, it allows you to customize your playstyle even more gives you more options during combat um you know you're not you're not just locked into like what you decided to go with and uh, and so forth and then you have like a us like a like an evasive maneuver uh that you can do um during this swap uh, swap as well um so that's really cool i'm sure the and uh, they they said like on may 16th they're going to start uh rolling out introduction videos for all the classes in sunbreak there's no new classes in sunbreak but they all have New switch skills and silk bind attacks, um, for the the upcoming expansion. So you know, uh, we're a few days away on that, barely like two days away, uh, and we're gonna start seeing you know what the new abilities each class has, which is really exciting because uh, a, a lot a lot of a lot of the classes right now in in uh, Rise kind of not not all of them, but uh, some live and die by their like silk bind attack. Um, and switch skill uh, arsenal. So we'll see. So what... I've been using longsword in mm -hmm. uh, my Rise PC because yeah. I haven't. It's funny. Funnily enough, I, like longsword's never really been my main weapon, but uh, it, it's kind of fucked up that uh, to get the Helmbreaker, it's a silk spine skill instead of just part of the weapon, like in the world. Uh, they, they they like it's so bizarre that like they they really didn't think about like the balance of like silk bind attacks in rise because some silk bind attacks like consume one wire bug it's like why this switch uh, this silk bind attack is so good <laughs> you 
So it's just it's crazy. We'll see. We'll see what the that brings. They also um announced the follower system in Sunbreak. These are uh, specific single player only quests where you can take NPCs from the game to like fa uh, with you on that quest because it's probably maybe story relevant for them. Um, so they announced, you know, uh, the followers are kind of like, you know, the palicos that you bring where, you know, they'll help you out in battle and they'll, they'll heal you if you need it. They'll, uh, but, but the, they also deal damage. Um, unlike them, however, like followers can also, uh, initiate mounts on their own. They can ride monsters. So that's kind of their, their main differentiation between you know them and the animal buddies that you can uh bring along with you so the this uh, this uh feature is uh available in both the elgato the new elgato hub in sunbreak and they'll also be available in kamara village as well um so we'll see how that uh, manifests in the game but that's pretty cool for people who wanted to kind of interact with the npcs more uh in there like you you kind of do with during the rampage quest when you can summon them but yeah th- that's about it um and i, I think like the oh yeah the-, the the funny thing that they like uh showed as well is during the malzeno fight malzeno is the flagship monster in sunbreak the vampire um, bat dragon yes thing. uh malzeno has this u- unique blood blight mechanic which is very reminiscent of uh gormagala's frenzy mecha- mechanic in older monster Hunter titles where Malzeno basically, when it inflicts you with blood blight, you kind of have this kind of um, tug of war between it trying to like suck your life force out, um, and if you're if you're able to like kind of break free of that life force, you don't you know you don't really suffer a big HP penalty on that. The frenzy mechanic that Gormagala had sorta had uh, a similar effect where if it inflicted frenzy on you, it would uh, basically. Uh, like you know continually like debuff you and like su- like kind of suck your health but if you're able to break free from that frenzy mechanic if you do enough damage it'll actually give you like a substantial buff from it i don't know if the blood light mechanic will give you that necessarily but if if uh balzeno um drains enough of your life force uh it'll evolve into a, like a more fearsome monster with different yeah, i assume different attack patterns and ai behavior It'd be a lot more aggressive, and that's very much like Gormagala in previous entries, where if the frenzy mechanic uh, is inflicted upon players enough times, Gormagala will evolve, and that fight becomes way more deadly uh, in that phase. So, you know, for people who want to keep the Gormagala dream alive, you have a Suido Gormagala already in Sunbreak with its flagship monster. Who knows? Who knows? I know I have a, a friend who's very much a big Gormagala fan that really, really wants to see their return in Monster Hunter. Um, I'm reading, lastly, I'm reading through the, uh, yeah, I'm re- I think you're getting to this. I'm reading through the news post that you put together for this. And these last two things I think are actually like the most of like, thank God, these little quality yeah. of life updates. Yeah, they, they, they started teasing like a bit of the, the, some of the quality of life and enha- improvements they're uh, introducing into Sunbreak uh, as well. And for people who are, who have played Rise for a while, uh, this will be very, very valuable to them. Uh, the first one they uh, showed off is now, this is so stupid because it's like some of the, one of those things that like you should have been able to do, but couldn't. You can now initiate a wall run without having to wire dash into it first. 
So like in 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 Rise right now, if you want to wall like wall run like a pretty high like wall, you have to wire dash into it first. You can't just like normally just like sprint into it to initiate it. So some, if it's if it's not a high wall, it's just silly because you're standing like a foot in front of it. Like all right, let me like aim at it and fire at it so I can start running yeah. on it. Yeah. Um, and uh, another one which is very very big and will might drastically like shift how hunts work in uh, Sunbreak is now um, usually when you do enough silk bite attack damage to foes in Rise they'll go into a down state and they kind of have like a dizzy like icon uh, over their heads but like during this phase you're forced to ride the monster and mount them and like bash them against the wall three times to, to down them and like and uh, even even like if you're just trying to attack it it'll automatically make you ride them uh, if you try to attack them in that down state so like it was kind of like you know how, how it works uh, in practice is as soon as the uh, as soon as the monster is stunned whoever hits him first starts riding him and it's yeah. it's it's, al it's almost accidental sometimes you're like oh i guess he was stunned because i was in the middle of a combo and my my hit just landed next all right i guess i got to do the mount crashing now yeah and and, mount and mounting and rise like isn't like a perfect system because like it's it's kind of fun like when you do it the first few times at seeing like you know how what attacks you can do with the monster as you ride it gets them. old very very fast yeah, it gets old pretty fast and like the amount of damage you do to a monster when someone is riding them is like practically nothing so like you have to pretty much wait it wait them wait it out and hope like you know the one riding them knows like you know the fastest way to kind of like uh get them down while doing enough damage so now in sunbreak when monsters go in that down mountable state you don't have to ride them. The 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 they'll you won't be automatically forced to ride them. You can continue attacking them, and you won't have to like be forced to ride them. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, and you know, and they said they shared that they'll have more quality of life enhancements to announce, you know, at a later date. And if the if these are the first ones they're they're revealing, that I'm kind of hopeful for whatever else they have uh, to show because this this kind of at least is acknowledging that like, hey, you know. There were problems with Rise that we can fix, and hopefully more meaningful changes and improvements uh, will be shared on that. But you know, that's that's a good chunk of Sunbreak that they uh, revealed in that digital event. It was a lot. I wonder if that not having to mount them is—it's almost just like paralysis by another name. They'll just be stunned for a bit for you to do what you want with. Yeah, I—I I mean, I—I I have to imagine like. Because in in some in some ways you can do more damage to just like a down mod uh, a, like a, like a down monster in that state than just like bashing them against the wall. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. Like because the thing is, is that yeah, you're getting the burst damage from like knocking them into the wall a few times, but think of all the damage you're losing by basically nobody else being able to hit them. So yeah, yeah like well, while while one player has to do this exercise the other three literally just have to like sit on their hands for a bit because they're doing one or two damage per swing and like all right just gotta wait yeah and i'm getting uh, generations ultimate when uh, somebody else had uh, mounted the monster yeah you weren't dealing much damage but uh at least when you hit them it was like adding to the bar which made it easier for the monster to be knocked over which is funny because the way it worked to Monster Hunter 4, it's like it was even worse. It's kind of like the same situation with Rise, but worse in the sense that uh, if somebody mounted the monster in 4 for ultimate, if you attacked the monster as someone was mounting it, it made it easier for the person that had mounted it to fall off. Nightmare. Wait, say, that, say that again. 
If you attack the monster, uh, you could knock off your ally. Yeah, it, it it was a nightmare in four. It's just like, oh god. And the fact they changed it from um for generations was good, but it also meant that it was like confusing because it's like, but it was the exact opposite. You didn't want to attack the monster, but it's like now you do. It's like, yeah. And now it doesn't matter because you don't do any damage. I think I kind of covers it all my time with Rise so far and what we're looking forward to uh, with Sunbreak, which is coming out, let's see, June 30th. So in a little over a month. Glad that I finally found some time to get caught up before then. And I'm guessing some of these quality of life features will be like free updates to the game that you'll have access to regardless of uh, whether you have access to the expansion or not. If I remember right, Iceborne did kind of the same thing with some of its uh, differences that it made with the Clutch Claw. So the last thing we'll talk about here in the games we've been playing section of this podcast will be something a little bit different. And this is something that I know a few people here on the podcast are interested in. And that is, is that James has received his Switch deck. Switch deck. Uh, why did Switch I say deck. that? <laughs> I, I caught myself yeah. as soon as I said it. Damn it. <laughs> it would have been deck. funny. It, it would have been funny if you had called it uh, Switch Pro. Because yeah, <laughs> the, <laughs> yes. well, yeah, the Steam Deck. Well, we'll keep that in there. So yeah, the Steam Deck. <laughs> so I know that, uh, or I, th- I think I know that uh, Josh has one on the way as well as Chow. Yeah, uh, I have but, mine pre-ordered, but it yeah, says Q free. So whenever hell that is, mine I is still April through June. So any day now, I, I might be getting mine yeah, either. Maybe, maybe yeah, probably next week then, like Monday oh. or Thursday. Like, uh, yeah, I mean, like, yeah. Uh, so first off, can I just say that it's like, it feels really weird knowing that the Steam Deck is out there, but it's like, to put things in perspective, I was there second one trying to order this thing. And because like Steam basically collapsed in on itself, it took me 15 minutes to get my order in. 15 minutes was the difference between getting a launch unit and waiting two months. (laughs) So it's going to be really interesting to see like the cadence for how they're getting these into people's hands. Cause you can tell, like they said that they've ramped up production, but you can tell that it hasn't like caught up to the popularity of the system yet. And it's like, it's funny because the steam decks out, obviously people have it, but the one takeaway before I even go into the specifics I have, like having used it for a couple of days now is that it feels weird kind of getting like a preview of what is going to be, in my opinion, massive a few months down the line because, because of that cadence of uh, the system actually getting the people's hands, having one even two months after launch feels like early access in a way. And it's really, really interesting. Just, it's just really cool like using this and being like, man, people are going to love this thing when it's actually readily available. <laughs> Cause it's out. It's not like you've got an early copy, but you kind of got an early copy. The copy. Yeah. Unit. Is so it the I same like it's getting a PS five right now. Uh, kind of. This is def- it, it, the, the funny thing is, is that we don't know like the actual like number of units uh, that have been shipped out. We know generally how many people have reserved one. Because you can look at the number of people that have the reservation in their Steam library. But I don't know, like my best guess is, is that we've like they've shipped at least 100,000 of these, probably a little bit more. It's like that's not a lot. But when you consider that it's like 
just a single type of PC, and obviously there's more like being shipped all the time. I don't know. But uh I saw that you had tweeted out putting Final Fantasy 14 on it, but I don't know what else you've tried or how to what extent you tried Final Fantasy 14 on it. So I've spent the last couple of days doing a bunch of different things on this thing. So rather than me try to go over everything, I guess I'll have an open floor like if anyone has any questions about like actually using this thing. So out, outside of outside of outside of just installing games on it just to, just for like for lack of a better word shits and giggles have you installed anything on the steam deck that you then put significant time into and you went ahead and played three four five hours of it that way yes uh one of the things i don't want to talk about on the podcast but there have been a few games that i put uh quite a bit of time into uh just last night i was messing around with steam input and i tried uh risk rain 2 a bit uh put about an hour into it uh, I have been playing Monster Hunter Rise a bit on it as well, and it runs really on well your on the- Switch deck. Yes, <laughs> sorry, uh, but yeah, it's like uh, mostly high settings, seven twenty p sixty. I mean, which is really good. Um, I'm planning to play through uh, the rest of Dot Hack GU Last Recode on this thing. I just booted it up and um, max settings. Though honestly, I turned. Uh, Shadow resolutions and uh, anti-aliasing down to medium because you can't tell the difference on the screen and better battery life runs really well. Um, Is it just comfortable to like to hold? Like I know a lot of people's like uh, was worried about like the placement of the sticks, so, like where the face buttons were. Um, like it's those? the most ergonomic handheld I've ever used. Okay, Ooh. that's surprising considering the shape of it. You know, I was thinking, yeah, like- it's part of, it. It looks like it would be unwieldy to hold. But ironically enough, like the very first thing I thought when I like got it was I take it out. It's like this thing is bigger than I thought it would be, but it actually works out because it's got like these really nice grips on the side. And the way that you naturally hold it, it's very easy to use the D-pad and the face buttons that way. And it's also yeah. not much more movement to use either the track pads or the uh, analog sticks. So it's like it works out for it. Like it doesn't feel unwieldy the hold it's really comfortable and while it is heavier than the switch it's not fatiguing now maybe it'll be different if you have smaller hands but i have big hands so this is like there if are you have, many if you have big hands the steam deck is super comfortable I, i'm sorry i i use i have very small hands i even yeah. use a ps1 I, 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 to, to see like uh, when chow gets it in. i want to hear like from his perspective like from the small hand perspective <laughs> yeah it's like oh man, like the, the sticks are like a mile away from my my thumb. Can't do it. I, I personally don't even use a PS5 controller anymore because it's too heavy. <laughs> Dang. Okay. I actually like heavy controllers. I like controllers with a, bit, with a bit of heft to them. Like the the Switch Pro controller is like weighs nothing, and I actually don't like it. I I want a little bit of heft. I think I would. I did mention a specific thing I've been playing in uh, the staff chat just so um, for like context. Oh, okay. Now you can understand why I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Um, um uh, how which uh, model did you get? Did you get like the highest model? Yep, uh the 512 gigabyte model, which uh works out pretty well. I haven't put an SD card micro SD card in here. I, I don't know if I ever will because well 512 gigabytes is perfectly fine, and realistically, I'm only gonna have like a couple of games on this thing at any given time. So just install Call of Duty and then you will want to go to <laughs> Though I'll I did buy a one terabyte SD card once it comes in. That's what I'll do. 
Yeah. Um, as of right now, I can just like list what I've installed. Uh, Aperture Desk Job, haven't done that yet. Bully Scholarship Edition, because that's uh, playable. Caligula Effect Overdose, which is unsupported, but it boots fine and the videos play, so I don't know what's up with it yet. I haven't actually gone around to put significant time into it, so I don't know why it's unsupported or if it just works now, because that's the funny thing. There's a lot of games, and I guess I'll get to this later, where they say they're unsupported, but Valve has been so good about updating Proton within even just a few months that this has been out. So that a lot of games which were like tested at or near launch and were unsupported updates to Proton have since made them playable. And like Persona 4 Golden was perfectly playable on Steam Deck for like a month before they reevaluated it and brought it up from unsupported to verified. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Dragon's Dogma, Dark Arisen, Hell yeah. uh, DuckTales Remastered. Okay. It does sorry this is dominant and covered in like previews, but as someone who has not really watched a lot of previews, I don't have one of these on order. If you're looking through your current Steam library, or if you're looking at the Steam store, is it very obvious whether a game is supported or not? Um, like does, it, does it clearly? So, go ahead. So through your library on the on the actual Steam app, there isn't a way to tell from just the library page. From the store page, you can because there's like a little emblem. So like I'm opening up the store. Uh, what games are there? Okay. Deathloop. I'm just going to click this uh, view page and underneath. So, you know, where it tells you about like multiplayer stuff, controller support and all that and like languages mm-hmm. underneath that is uh, Steam Deck compatibility. I feel like this should be listed above the add to cart button. So it's easier for you to tell at a glance, but yeah. it is on the score page. But um. On Steam Deck itself, obviously, it'll like outright tell you like they're like by default, there's a great on deck section of the library. And that's every game in your library that's um, verified. Uh, And then you can also filter your all games library by verified only, verified and playable, verified, playable and untested and all games. Okay, so it sounds like I've really thought through that through to make it very clear that. Yeah, if you got a Steam Deck, what you should try on it and what might not be supported. Yeah, and I will say, though, that there's only been one game that I've tested so far, even among ones that are listed as unsupported, that outright doesn't work. And that was Trillion God of Destruction, which isn't a big deal for me because I have it on Vita. I can just play it there if I ever want to actually play that game sometime. But like, let me put it this way. At launch, a lot of people were talking about how, uh, well, not a lot of people, but some people (laughs) in my sphere we're talking about how Trolls in the Sky worked, but the videos didn't, and that's why it was listed as unsupported. Uh, I can confirm right now, because uh, a buddy of mine did uh, DM me saying, hey, so actually a recent regular-ass Proton update made it so that the uh, videos play perfectly fine. So I downloaded Trolls in the Sky first chapter, loaded up my endgame save, just hit the credits and both the FMVs at the end, like the credits and the SC teaser movie ran perfectly fine. Like no issues with sound or uh, visuals or anything like that. So I'd say, well, obviously having 100% compatibility would be great. I feel like one thing people need to understand is that even on windows, there's a lot of games that have issues running on modern PCs or will have these random issues depending on your setup. And the way I see it right now, at least in my experience, again, I haven't tried every game in my library and 
there, there's always going to be a limit to what someone can realistically test. But from what I've tried, like it, like so far, it's living up to what as a PC gamer I expected from what Val said by, oh, we want to make the entire Steam library playable. I didn't ever think that that was going to be 100% possible. Like anti-cheats, one thing like Destiny 2 doesn't work on Steam Deck because Bungie very explicitly decided to um, block it, even though they could make it work. But everything I've tested besides that one game, and I've tested like uh, around 30 games right now, seems to work perfectly fine some games like that i really didn't expect to work out of the box did like the silver case it works perfectly it even uh, it even uh scales to 16 by 10 with no issues uh, but, uh tried the uh, things from like different launchers like let's just say the kingdom hearts free from epic game store for example i haven't tried that yet and that game's also 100 gigabytes so i don't want to install it <laughs> how mm. is the uh battery life uh so it's like oh, it's a launch variable, switch. Yeah. yeah, like a launch switch. If you're if you're basically fully utilizing the uh TDP, you're going to get about two, two and a half hours of battery life. Uh, if you're playing something that's considerably uh less um power hungry, like for example, uh Trails in the Sky, when I loaded it up, and one of the cool things is is that you have the Steam button, which is basically like the standard like Xbox or PlayStation home button. And then there's a quick menu button that's on the right side of the unit underneath the right trackpad. And if you click that, you get a bunch of stuff like a performance overlay you can change. And it tells you like your battery percentage and how much projected battery life you have left based off of how much the system is currently drawing in power. That's kind of nice. And the the performance overlay is really cool because basically at max tilt, it's like exactly like Riva Tuner works really, really well. Um, one of the things they most recently added is a, uh, so there was already performance settings. Like you could set a system wide frame, uh, frame rate cap. It can be from like 15, 30, 60 or off. Uh, one of the things the most recent beta firmware has added is a refresh rate toggle. This is not a VRR display. Hopefully that's something they do for the next generation. But what you can do is you can set the um, refresh rate of the display itself as low as f- as 40. That way, for games that maybe have a bit of headroom above 30 FPS, you can get running at 40. And as long as it's locked to 40, it's steady and you don't have to worry about frame pacing issues. And conversely, if there's some games where you want them to be a bit smoother, they can easily hit 60 FPS but you want to have a bit more battery life, you can cap it at like 40 or 50 hertz and just cap the frame rate there and get a bit of extra battery life. It's, um, I guess the one thing that I can say is it's a very tinkerer-friendly uh, tinker handheld. It's like, and that works for me. Obviously, it's not going to work for everyone, but as somebody that was very used to like dealing with like PSP plugins for custom firmware and even Vita custom firmware stuff back in the day, it's like I'm just at home and it's been it's been a while since I've used a Linux operating system. This even has like a Linux desktop you can uh, reboot into and install like stuff from the uh, Discover App Store. Like you can there's like a an app that people put together called Emudeck that just you run it and it'll automatically like download and set up every emulator you could ever need. 
That's interesting. Like, yeah, I didn't know like how like people are like community efforts are already on that. That's that's really cool. Yeah, um, there's even somebody's made a plugin loader that ties into the Steam Quick Access menu. Like one of the things that people have added is this plugin called Power Tools, which actually lets you um, by default the system. I don't think uh, lets the CPU use its built-in boost frequency, but you can set it to do that. Um, and it's just the stock CPU boost, so it's not overclocking. It's just like, this is something the silicon supports. It's just uh, SteamOS doesn't, by default, enable this. Like, if you install Windows on this thing, it'll do it on its own. But um, and one other thing is you can set the number of threads that's uh, available. And this works with that's the crazy. performance <laughs> uh, profile. So, like, if you're emulating something like Dolphin, uh, you can limit the number of threads to, like, four Wow. That way, um, it's using less uh, vol- uh, less power on the CPU, but it's allocating them more efficiently, which allows them to boost higher, which will have better performance overall at less battery uh, draw. It's really, wow. really cool. And it's like, and, and obviously, again, this is stuff that you have to tweak, but the fact that this is even an option, like it's very, very plug or pl- uh, plug and play friendly for games that are verified. It's very usable out of the box but like Val said that it gives you the freedom to make these tweaks that you want that you want to make and really the limit is what you're like willing to do to customize your experience and it's really really nice my last question is um how are the does it have speakers on it and how are they they're surprisingly fantastic like they get really one of my loud, least favorite things distortion. Hmm? one of my least favorite things about switch is the default speakers on it are really really bad i think yeah these are really really good speakers they get loud but they don't distort like um uh, like cheap speakers to get loud do um they're the best speakers on a handheld like no question again that's a low bar but like these are like obviously most of the time i'm going to be using headphones but these are speakers where it's like, if I don't want to wear my headphones for whatever reason, I don't feel like I would be missing out because they're that good quality. I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited. I, I really want mine in after hearing all this. Well, I thanks have no for idea covering... what to install on it. I'm thinking, like, what am I going to like install on it when I get it in? I have no idea. Monster Hunter yeah. Rise. Obviously, you can play Sunbreak on that thing. Well, I'll play Final Fantasy VII Remake. I told my friends, I was like, it's like, why would you buy the game twice so I can play in the toilet? I mean, that's the dream. Yeah. And, oh, that's another thing. Like, um, this is, like, people have talked about the stuff with Elden Ring where um, thanks to, like, uh, SteamOS's uh, shader caching, if you play Elden Ring on Steam Deck, it's the only way to play it on PC without stuttering because it just pre-caches shaders. And because it's a it's a um, set hardware spec, anyone that plays Elden Ring on Steam Deck is going to be contributing to that shader cache. And that even works for um, a bunch of other games. So like maybe not Final Fantasy VII Remake right now, but when it eventually comes to Steam... Anyone that plays it on Steam Deck will be contributing to that shader cache, which means that down the line, the best way to play Final Fantasy VII Remake might just be SteamOS or like Steam Deck because you won't get the stutters. 
crazy. Yeah, it's it's absolutely uh crazy. Yeah, it's I've been really surprised and impressed with how well Proton's been working. Cause like even as someone in the past that used wine back when I daily drove Linux, I didn't expect it to have come so far. Like even stuff outside of like the uh, Steam OS like game mode experience. Like back when I used Linux, there was like no real easy way to have just like executables for um Linux apps. You would have to find the the specific installer file for your flavor of Linux. If you're using like Ubuntu or Debian, you need to find a .deb file. If you're using Arch, you need to find an AUR file, stuff like that. Uh, now there's stuff just called app images or just basic like standalone executables. And this is like going out in the weeds, but my takeaway has been I have never been this close to like straight up going back and ditching Windows than I have now because seeing like how well these games that I play all the time are working on Linux right now and seeing how much easier the desktop experience is, even with the limited scope of the Steam Deck, it's like, man. I think people are sleeping on how well this is making the argument that maybe in the future, if somebody's making a gaming PC, they shouldn't even consider Windows because this is like, man, I I don't feel like I even need to say it, but like Windows 11 and even Windows 10 is there are so many issues that are just gets frustrating the more and more I use it. And it's like, man, getting close to the point where it's like, I'm fine with dealing with some Linux jank. Because it feels like it's getting less than a Windows shank these days. Like, man. Ciao. Here's something to uh, marinate on. Get a Steam Deck to install BlueStacks on it. Oh, no. He's <laughs> get to play mobile gotcha games. <laughs> but uh, no, thank you for covering your time with Steam Deck. It'll be interesting to see as other games come out and as uh, Josh and Chow get their hands on it, what they end up trying with it. And I am now just realizing that we are almost at the two hour mark on this podcast already. But I think like this is the most like sometimes in the in the early section of these podcasts, uh, when we get to the two hour mark, I'm like, oh, no, we got to speed up. But I think we've had some really cool conversations about all the games and features and reviews and Steam Deck uh, impressions that I that I don't regret it, hopefully. Uh, but as we go into the new section of the podcast, maybe we'll just keep that in mind so that we're not here for too, too long. But uh, all those written features that i mentioned are up on the site uh we've gotten through all the all of, we've gone through round robin on all the podcast participants to talk about what we've been playing what we've been uh trying out so let's go into the news section and we will start out with a couple of game announcements and this first one is from uh i guess formerly known as mihoyo but we got a new action rpg announced from Hoyoverse and Hoyoverse is a new moniker adapted from Mihoyo, who is a developer behind Genshin Impact and Honkai Star Impact in those games, as more of a global brand moniker. They have announced that you said you said Honkai Star Impact because and because you 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 combined Honkai Impact there and Honkai Star Rail together. Oh, so we need to do that. It's fine, it's fine, but that's really good. So there's well, I mean, Genshin, the is, there's Honkai Star Rail, Genshin Impact, mm-hmm. and what was the other one? Honkai third, Impact third. Okay, Impact third. Okay. Anyways, we're not talking about any of those games. We are talking about Zenless Zone Zero. This is a new action RPG from Hoyoverse, also known as MiHoYo. Uh, we got a new cinematic trailer for this new action RPG that takes place in a post-apocalyptic world. When I look at this trailer here, it reminds me of a very clean, fluid-looking 
almost like Scarlet Nexus, only a lot less like grungy and a lot more. Honestly, it has like a, it looks like it has a lot more budget behind it and it has a lot more uh, stylish character design, I think. So I don't know like what we thought about what we don't have a lot of other details here other than it is currently announced for PC and mobile devices. They're currently looking to expand the available platforms that the game will announce on the uh, the official the official site does have signups for the closed beta, but we don't have a date for that yet. I think that's pretty much all the details we have about the release of this game other than like the story premise. So story yeah. premise is that it, it, it takes place in a post-apocalyptic metropolitan city. There is new Eridu, which is the last urban civilizations to survive this apocalypse. And they're fighting uh, this supernatural disaster known as, oh, sorry, the hollows and the ethereal monsters that form out of thin air from those that the uh, protagonist ends up fighting. Well, I think this looks really interesting, but I also haven't played Genshin Impact, so I don't know like if there's stuff that I can't see here that is obvious to people who have played that. You're I seeing gotcha so... characters. I'm just kidding. I, know you <laughs> I find it so hilarious. There's like people upset that it's like, oh, why not? It's like, this is why Genshin got delayed. It's like, no, they got separate teams. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mihoyo or Hoyoverse has so many employees now, like uh, like they they really really ramped up uh their their team size uh over the past few years especially with the success of genshin but not all of it's like i don't know how many people like i i want to say i i have no idea but i i think the last the last number i saw was like 1200 uh, working at mihoyo but um it's uh it looks pretty cool like you know they describe it as a, a urban fantasy action rpg and like ryan said it looks like a cleaner scarlet nexus there's like a kind of like a funk to the trailer that, that that's kind of neat, neat like but I, I think uh i'm really interested to see like how the gameplay manifests because like as a th- trailer is teasing like it, it looks to be like a very fast-paced action rpg like it looks more along the lines of honkai impact third than than a genshin impact because the the action seems so fast-paced uh in that trailer uh par- part of the, the description is they're teasing like there's some sort of like roguelike element to the game as well. I'm really to see how that manifests. But uh, you know, like uh, the people at uh, Mahoyo do a lot of great work, especially when it comes to character designs. Like, there's a lot of distinct characters that they already shown. Like one of them is like a bear uh, that reminds you of um, um, what was the name of that uh, manga called uh, with the with the space colony? But the, the, like uh, it reminds you of that. One of them looks like Ragnar the Blood Edge from Blaze Blue with a mask. Uh, uh, over them, the bear um, is cool. He's like a, a giant grizzly bear in like a judo outfit. Yeah. Um. So I mean, it. It. I want. I'm really interested to see more. I'm just really surprised that like they've been uh, announcing games left and right. Like they're st- they're still doing closed betas for like Honkai Star Rail, and that's not out yet. And then now here they are just announcing another full blown game. I'm interested to see it to, to, to learning more. It. Uh, both both this and Honkai Star Rail, like uh, they they interest me. I don't know if like I'll latch onto them, but what they do, what they do shows like it's uh it's cool. Like you know, it's cool that Mihoyo has grown to this degree, um because they 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 make cool games. I, I think what happens more like they want something similar to um to Honkai Impact again. I mean, what from I know what people play Honkai Impact is that they love the action of this game, but it gets old really fast. So they probably want something that's Make something better, you know. Yeah, that's why I look at it. Yeah, and uh, I think I think that's that's perfectly fine. If they want to capitalize on the strength of Hawkeye Impact for like a new project, then go for it. Because when I played a Hawkeye Impact, like I, I I'll echo those statements that the 
the action gameplay is really cool, but I think like the progression uh, of the game, um, you know, obviously the the gotcha mechanics aren't really that interesting to me. So hopefully they find a way to, you know, kind of not be <laughs> kind of shitty on the gotcha front. But it's I will say, though, that watching this gameplay trailer, it looks really fast and fluid, but it almost makes me a little bit seasick because they've got like the camera panning from a distance in a way that you wouldn't be on normal gameplay. And then also like zooming in and out and then changing direction as it changes characters. Yeah, it's, it's, a very, uh, it's, a, it's a very fast paced, upbeat like trailer and try, it tries to match that with, with the way it's composed. It, it, it is. It, it is uh, overwhelming visually. Yeah, I don't think the game will be because you'll have a, a more fixed perspective. But as part of the trailer to try to showcase it, they've got like this camera just panning constantly. And I'm like, oh, it's all, I'm almost getting a little bit seasick looking at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it looks really, really fun and flashy and fluid. So no other details for like release date. But there, like I said, there is the official site with just have signups for a closed beta. We also got another game announced this week, guys. It is a Lord of the Rings RPG. It is a Lord of the Rings collectible role-playing game called Lord of the Rings Heroes of Middle-Earth. And that is pretty much all we know. We did not get a key art. We did not get any screenshots, let alone a trailer. EA is the publisher behind this. The developer will be Capital Games. I don't think we got any detail about release dates or anything other than Lord of the Rings Heroes of Middle-Earth has been announced so Adam. like collectible systems does this have a gotcha mechanic can i like a roll like an ssr frodo <laughs> adam did i, I miss I'm anything sure even the bad gotcha game is still better than the super nintendo lord of the rings game i just played i, I just I, I whenever i think of like a lord of the, the lord of the rings game i think of like the ps2 the third age game that was like ff10 but lord mm-hmm. of the rings and that was sick i'd, I'd rather have one of those of, uh shadows of mordor did anyone play that I played, I played, yeah, Sh- I played that. Shadow I played... of Mordor was okay with promise. And then Shadow of War, by the time it came out, I just had no more interest in that style of game, I guess, for, for whatever reason. Yeah, Shadow of Mordor was, a, yeah, like that was a pretty decent game. Shadow of War, that's problems. Uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, I think you mentioned Adam, Brian. Well, I was just wondering, like, he's the one that. Uh, cover the news i just don't know if i missed anything because it feels like so threadbare like am I missing uh, the only other thing i know is that this developer also made like a star wars heroes mobile game so it's probably the same as that with lord of the rings but i don't know anything about it the lord of the rings heroes of middle earth will feature immersive storytelling turn-based combat uh, Ooh, they, they're oh, classy look at the look at the <laughs> look at the asterisk thing at the end of the press release uh persistent internet connection required age restriction supply includes in-game purchases including random items i think it is freaking gotcha <laughs> game <laughs> Dude. it sure comes fast i want i want my ular uh, white gandalf so yeah the they previously released star wars galaxy of heroes which you know considering same developer similar sort of name i'm gonna guess it's pretty much that game with the Lord of the Rings skin. Dang, maybe I should go play that and go get, get, start start uh, doing research uh, on this. <laughs> like, how's this game going to play? I mean, that's that's cool, I guess. I really, I'm really... Like, I'm, like, bummed I, out. I, I don't know. Like, oh. I, like, I don't know. That's... I need to see it in action first before I... Like, I, I, I like Lord of the Rings, but I'm very hesitant about this. Mm-hmm. Outside of those two game announcements, we got some gameplay trailers for some previously announced games, and I'll just go through these in order. The first one is a gameplay trailer for Fire Emblem Warriors Three Hopes. This is the Muzo spinoff, Interquel, 
alternative story thing for from following from Fire Emblem Three Houses that's coming out in June. We basically got a trailer showcasing all the characters from the uh, Kingdom of Fargus from the Blue Lions house. Is it Blue Lions? Am I misremembering that? It is Blue Lions. Blue Lions. Okay. This this trailer basically is a very straightforward trailer where it shows about you know 10 seconds of gameplay across all the different characters from that house in the game and how they all play. So I anticipate that in future podcasts uh, in the upcoming weeks, we'll get one for the uh, the Golden Deer and the Black Eagles as well. It kind of looks exactly how you expect it to. I don't think there's really much in the way of surprises here. Uh, we did get, I, mean, I guess... You, people, yeah, people got like the, the designs of the Doom, Mercedes, Ash, Felix, and that Sylvain and Ingrid in the game. I think that's the biggest uh like surprise for them like i think the do was already previously shown but like the rest of the blue lions like it's like nice seeing like the a new character art for them uh in this game and seeing how they're portrayed yeah and the, the, people have the, made the, some uh some like tables that shows like comparison of the pre pre-skip post-skip and now this like spin-off mm-hmm. art and comparing it across all the characters yeah but it's it, it you know, it shows like uh, more of the gameplay of like some of the classes, like you saw maybe like an armored fortress knight in there. Uh, the Felix was the uh, sword master. And it's just it's kind of like introducing them. Like that's kind of the main thrust of the of the trailer. But the rest is like not necessarily new. But uh, people are just hoping and hoping and hoping that it doesn't uh, suffer the same clone move set problem that the previous Fire Emblem Warriors. And we, and, we, and we won't really know that until we see the other like like we don't know for certain that there's going to be other cla- trailers for the other houses but almost probably almost and certainly what, almost certainly and yeah and, wa- and once we see like people who shared classes uh whether or not they'll we'll see if they play how similarly that they play but yeah we got that, um, that tra- question with that is that was just supposed to be the golden path for that game uh we don't really know yet like uh, well, like this is this is a very different uh story we don't know if there's like a quote-unquote golden path to three houses. Um, people are speculating it might be, but who knows, really, because of how Byleth is like um, the, their role in the story. So who knows? And I, I, honestly, for me, it's like uh, kind of like who cares too. Yeah, and it's got the different protagonist that doesn't exist in the main game. So how can it be a golden yeah. path? It's I, I'm I'm kind of thinking of it as its own thing, which I think kind of seems like the the tack that they're trying to take with it as well. Uh, I usually like to dodge those kind of games. I always, I don't know, I never enjoy the warrior style kind of games. So, yeah, they've been getting better, but at at, at their core, like uh, you know, the the, the Musu Musu warriors games are they have, they have their audience. I mean, I'm I'm part of that audience, but it, it's hard to convince people that like, oh, this is a good one of those. It's <laughs> because the people who have already like discarded them permanently well, well you won't ever change their minds yeah, i had a very very bad experience playing gundam muso i was like mm, i don't think i like this series at all we also got a new uh trailer sorry not trailer we got 13 minutes of gameplay footage for the upcoming gotham knights uh rip in peace um george foster i miss you uh but this was kind of a combination of a gameplay release as well as information about the uh, release platforms for this game. It was originally announced for uh, PlayStation 4 and Xbox One, but Gotham Knights has dropped those versions. It will be PC and next-gen only. And alongside this, uh, that announcement of platforms, we did get 13 minutes of footage from Gotham Knights. And the gameplay footage, it looks interesting. It looks fine. It's a third-person uh, action game. 
that is obviously designed to be played in co-op. But the main part of the gameplay here, a good chunk of it, is like this like one-on-one combat encounters and a little bit of like traversal across the the stages of the map. And the animations look almost like slow motion or that they're like underwater. I don't know how else to put yeah. it. They look kind of, they look kind of stiff. Like yeah, especially like, at, the, like at, the, at the beginning, like you see Nightwing going in with his like lighter on on top of a roof, and then like he, as he's he's like he's like when he's switching between like enemies in that like when, on his assault on that roof, it's like like you said, it's like very like back and forth, but like slowly. Like I hit one here, then go back to the, the, the to the direct opposite direction here. And it's like he's kind of like dancing around, but in slow mo in between the enemies. And then like there's like enemies that are like jumping and swinging clubs, but because everything is like kind of at the slower pace, they're almost like airborne for longer than a person could realistically actually be able to jump. It's just interesting. Yeah. Like it doesn't look bad. It doesn't look like it just, it's just something about it feels a bit off. I think some of it might be because they're trying to like make it like flashy out of the cinematic trailer. It, it's got yeah, like, yeah, it's I got like, I can't tell if it's like sped down gameplay, like, like, in, in, like intentionally, like, like for that trailer and like the main game is faster. Like, I don't know, or if that's just the natural speed. Because like maybe they sl- they slowed it down like to showcase like the animation work uh, mm-hmm. for that character because they, they it, it is pretty intricate and he does a lot of flips uh, yep. during it. But yeah, it's a I, I think I think the part of the trailer that like interested me the most was like when they showed like briefly like, like the gearing system in that game because the, there's like gear score uh, for characters and like and the and the armor pieces that they're equipping like change their appearance. Uh yeah, that's a. Uh... I always like that in games like this where it actually is represented on the on the protagonist's uh, model what you've got equipped. So I don't know what to pick of that game yet. I don't know. Well, also one thing I just can't speak to is that like I'm just not in the DC verse enough to really know what I'm seeing. Like I know who Nightwing is and things like that, but other than that, I don't know like what story this is adapting or borrowing ideas from or all that stuff. And I'll be honest, like I don't really know who Red Hood is. I'm not that I don't know much about DC. So like I'm not really in the target audience for this. I would need to get George on here and be like, what are you seeing here? Anything here that's like really enlightening about like a cameo, like a long awaited character or anything like that. I just don't have any of that. The story is Batman is dead. That's that's Uh, what the story is in this game. there's also a trailer about a custom bat cycle that you can get if you pre-order that as well. <laughs> but yeah, the uh, release date for this is October 25th, still coming out for PC and next gen. Uh, just dropped its uh, PlayStation 4 and Xbox One versions. All right, now we'll go into a few release dates and a couple delays for some upcoming RPGs for the year. Uh, the first one is one that we talked about not too long ago on the podcast. We talked about the announcement of a global release for the Nino Kuni, Nino Kuni mobile MMO Crossworlds. And we didn't know a release date other than that it was it released last year in Japan in June, but we were going to get a global release at some time this year. Well, now that has been set for May 25th. We got a really short release date trailer for this. And then alongside that, we also got uh, just kind of a fun kind of K-pop music video trailer as well from the, um, from the YouTube channel for the game. And we talked a little bit about what this game was uh, when we talked about the global announcement uh, early in April, because obviously it's been out in Japan for about a year now. but has anyone here got expressed any interest in trying this game when it launches here by the end of the month? Maybe I'll try. I mean, sure. Why not? I'll, I'll try it. The, this game also will have a PC client uh, as well uh, on top of its mobile releases. Like it'll be like at the site. Um, so it's not gonna be on steam or anything, but it'll have like a PC client. I'll try that out. I mean, why not? Um, they, they also like showed off like, uh, like trailers of like, you know, the last time we talked about this game is just, Hey, it's getting released in the, in the West uh, mm-hmm. sometime. 
and then along the, the way they've been like pumping out videos like showing off the classes of the swordsman witch engineer rogue and destroyer and then like i guess there's some mounts in the game so they showed off some videos for the like mounts like this large cat and like a like a grumpy bird and like a wing lighter vehicle so it, it i don't know it, it looks it looks interesting uh, like i saw some videos it's like a kind of like an action rpg it definitely like it, it definitely it feels like a game that like was made because genshin impact was really successful <laughs> so i'm like all right well, why not i'm watching this burby trailer and he doesn't look that grumpy they He's do adorable. describe it as grumpy yeah, yeah they, the grumpy <laughs> but adorable burby there, there's definitely a certain like charm to it uh visually that, that the previous nino kuni games had so that's kind of what is drawing me in is like it's a very vibrant and colorful like the other nino kuni games i've got too many mmos i'm playing so i'm not gonna try yeah I, I i don't i don't expect i'm gonna like stick onto it because you know i tried to i put 200 hours into an mmo this year and i fell off of it and i was like i like, I, I, play I, it with a steam deck <laughs> <laughs> yeah Oh god. Um but I I I'm not like a long-term MMO person. That's what I learned about myself. Mm-hmm. Also releasing this summer, we've got a console port for Sword and Fairy 7. This is an RPG that released on PC late last year and it will now be releasing on PlayStation 4 and PlayStation 5 as Sword and Fairy Together Forever at some point this summer. Uh we've talked about the uh the other Sword and Fairy games have been releasing in english on pc over the last couple of years uh underneath the uh chinese paladin title for some of them uh, i don't think we've formally covered any of them on the site but we've been making sure to announce them uh as they've been available have, in english uh, on pc uh, uh elizabeth hinges uh back in 2019 uh published their review of uh the, the chinese paladin sword and fairy six. Oh, so uh, we did cover six yeah yeah, and uh, they they did not like it, but the the even though Sword and Fairy Six didn't seem to hit well, Sword and Fairy Seven seems to have a uh, pretty uh, pretty positive reception. Um, yeah, on Steam, for instance, Six is yeah. a mixed reception, where Seven is a mostly positive. So now Seven will also be available on PS4 and PS5 under the it, under the yeah. New title. I, I I remember that the Sword and Fairy Seven like uh, also was like a great showcase for ray tracing. Uh, as well, I don't know if re- those ray tracing features will be on the PS5 version or anything, but I I remember that was like one of the key highlights for Sword and Fairy Seven when it released on Steam. That like people were really impressed by the way it, it employed ray tracing throughout the game. Uh, and then this is not really I don't know why I said release dates or delays, but this is just another date to keep in mind. I'm just these dates are just in chronological order. But on July 19th, Tales of Luminaria will shut down. Oh. oh my god i'm so shocked and uh, surprised and i'm so glad that chow made it back to the podcast for this part when did so this I, game release like all right five months ago i think it doesn't feel like that long ago we were just in another podcast room talking about how this game was different from the other tales mobile projects how it wasn't really a crossover game uh had had original characters and how it was uh had a, a long-term plan for support uh mm-hmm. and it had like 25 different characters from like three different groups of like, I don't know. They, it felt like they're really like going all gung ho on this. And mm-hmm. uh, it launched on November 4th. So it mm-hmm. survived what, eight months? Well, I mean, I mean, the, the, the game is effectively like now, like for, for like these types of games, like 
the game and, and the communities might is like it, it it died like the day it got the end of service announcement. So mm-hmm. I mean, yes, it's shutting down in July, but it but it really shut down on May tenth for for people. I really felt sorry for that director guy, the one that's been asked all these tough questions, like, oh, will this game be shut down in a year, like the other two games? I'm like, uh, uh. Uh, yeah, yeah, they they like around the the like a few days before Tales of Luminaria launched, they had like a Q and A live stream with like I think the producer or the director, and like well, like it was like it's like this very unfiltered uh, question and answer section. So like one of the questions was like. You know, Tales of the Rays did it like barely lasted a year. How is there any guarantee that like this uh uh game is gonna last more than a year? And like of course the standard answer is like, you know, we have like a like a set content plan and we we, we intend to like finish that. But like, you know, I, I mockingly when 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 that question was asked, like I was I zoomed up on the dude's face and like when he when he got that question. <laughs> took a shot of it. But like uh, I it, don't want to be in that guy's shoes, man. I, I don't I don't want to be in that guy's shoes. Yeah, but that that sucks, but at the same time, you know, a lot of people like there's no I'll surprise to people to who saw like, you know, when that game came out, it's like this game's not good. Uh oh. Yeah, I'll be blunt. Um and I've actually fallen into this trap too. Where um, when I originally covered Romancing Saga Reuniverse, I was very, I, I tempered my expectations and in my impressions, I even said, look, I don't care what they say about how long they're going to support it. But considering what happened with the Star Ocean and Amnesis, Anamnesis, Anamnesis, Anamnesis. Yeah, Anamnesis. Uh, mo- uh, mobile game, it's like, I just don't trust companies when they say that when they have a history of shuttering mobile games. And it's like, now, obviously, in that case, Romancing Sagari Universe has been around for, like, what, two years now? Which is decent. Yeah. But when it comes to Tales of Mobile Games, it's like... They have poisoned the well so much for, for yeah, Tales yeah, of Mobile like, Games in the West. Like, like, okay, so, like, like Tales of the Rays, it's still going in Japan. It, like, got shuttered a year in the Western ver- version. And that really sucks because Tales of the Rays is probably, like, the best Tales mobile game. Uh, you know, because it's had like it, it had like classic tales action game. And then there was like Tales of like, Prestoria. It's like yeah, it's like okay. One of those things where they Tales of Prestoria like lasted like maybe a year and a half, maybe two years. I want to say. Uh, and it, it, I I feel really bad for that community because uh, like the Tales of Prestoria was actually trying to do something new for the series, being going full turn based. And you know, it had it had to share the problems, but like it had a very lovable like main cast and like a pretty damn good main story. Uh, in that, so I felt really, really bad for that community. When Tales of Luminaria was like, like announced out of nowhere during during one of like the Jeff Keighley's summer streams, and like once they announced, oh, there's a new Tales mobile game. It's like, isn't didn't Crystoria just launch like I, like a few months ago? So like, I was like, oh no, I feel like I already dropped Crystoria by by them, but like a lot of people saw the writing on the wall. It's like, what's gonna happen to Tales of Crystoria then? And sure enough, Tales of Crystoria announced that they were shutting down, like you know. Few like a few months back, and then I was like, okay, then I guess they only have Tales of Luminaria now. Um, is it gonna do well? And then it launches. I try to give that game a shot for like a week, maybe a little bit more. And it's like this game fucking sucks. And like they've been tra- and they've been trying to like put band aids on that game. It it launched without Japanese audio, uh, uh, no dual audio in it, which is like. Like, it, it, like Tales has seen its fair share of like English voice acting, and that's fine. But like, you know, a lot of the Tales fan base, like their your target audience, wants the that Japanese voice acting. And then on top of like, just the the game wasn't fun to like control because it was it was specifically made for portrait only on mobile phones. 
and like and and it was like, like an action game as well so like you had very very limited like uh, uh point of view on like what you're actually like attacking on the screen and like it, and then on top of like just it the monetization was like kind of scummy too because you were rolling for like not you you were able to get character but you were rolling for equipment you were rolling for accessories and like it was just like uh it was like a, just a hellhole of like you know what you can expect in a gotcha game with equipment systems uh so like all the worst charms of each games yeah then they had like uh like like weekly raid stuff and you know it just it just it wasn't fun like yeah, that's not, that's the long and short of it that it wasn't yeah. fun all I will say, as someone that doesn't regularly play mobile games, is that I feel like any company that has previously shuttered a mobile game within like a year, a year and a half, needs to like come forth with like a notarized contract or some shit when they're announcing a new one, saying we will support this for at least two years. <laughs> or yeah, else I just don't happen. care. Like, like, like I, I feel like I feel I feel really bad for the people who like who spent like their any money into like the the tales uh like like uh, mobile games in the west especially like restoria and luminaria especially yeah, luminaria it's just like yeah oh. Chow, of course it's not gonna happen but i feel like that's the only way to know for sure if something's gonna get any support beyond like in this case six fucking months god i think yeah. this is why everyone's back to fate grand order i mean it's always steady and running, you know. You don't have to worry about it. Yeah, Grand yeah, yeah, Blue and Fate, you know, at least are steady, if nothing else. Like, you know, problems aside, at least they can count on like them. And it's like people who play Mahoyo games, like Honkai Impact third players, at least they know that's steady. Uh, you know, that's a pretty old game by now, but it's steady and like has a future for How's it. What's Princess and, Connect doing? Um, I don't know actually. Like, I, I'm still playing it daily. Like, you know, just doing my dailies here and there, and playing with our with our community. But I don't know how it's doing revenue wise. Like on paper, it doesn't look great. So, but uh, but maybe it's enough for Crunchyroll to like justify like continuing it. Um, hopefully, it's doing okay uh, enough to like keep on running. So, you know, I would I, I hope so, but I don't know. I actually have no idea. Um, but yeah, this this sucks, dude. Like. I have a fun little like anecdote. So while you guys uh-huh. were discussing that, I was like thinking to myself, whatever happened to Bravely Default Brilliant Lights? And uh, so I started Googling that. I'm like, oh, okay, that released in Japan in uh, January and doesn't have a global release yet. And then that took me to the Reddit page for Gotcha Gaming, which I then oh. saw a link to this Zenless Zone Zero game that uh, Hoyoverse announced. I'm like, okay. And then I saw this meme about Tales of Luminaria crashing uh, or shuttering. And reminded me that it's, I guess, that uh, Tales of Asteria is a social mobile game that's been going on for like eight years. That's yeah, still I, alive. I, I, yeah, that's still going. I don't know if I don't know if it's like they announced that it's getting like uh, sh- shutting down or not. But that that you know, it's fine. Like if like if you're like an eight year old like mobile game and like and like you announced, yeah, you're gonna shut down. It's like okay, we get it. You know, you're fucking old. <laughs> like that makes sense. Like even you, 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 you've tried your best, and like it's it, it makes sense that it's time to like you know close the doors. Not less than a year in, not only just a year in. You know that that sucks. But yeah, I mean, I don't know what Bandai Namco plans to do from here on out. Like if they're just gonna like double down on like the next Bane Light Tales game off her console. Hopefully, uh, that that's what their plans are. Uh, because as like Lumen, like you could tell they really wanted uh, Luminaria to be the next big thing. They had. You know, it's a simultaneous global release. Uh, you know, it's ready to go. Um, they had like a two-episode like OVA series to promote it. 
And like they really went all in on the marketing for Luminaria and oh boy, it did not peter out at all. I think the whole landscape of the gotcha market has just completely changed from what they're thinking. Oh, yeah. Everyone's just thinking like how they would do it in 10 years ago, and this would be a smash hit. But times have changed. You can't just do a, like a minimum effort kind of shit. Yeah, like if it's stuff like Uma Musume and uh, Genshin Impact, like you can't, you can't, you have to put your best foot forward as much as possible. Now you cannot, you cannot do stuff like this. And I don't, I don't, I, I just don't understand, like, if they release another Tales mobile game in the West, how can they expect people to support it at this point? They don't, period. Yeah. You already burned the well, you know? I mean, you already poisoned the well, you know? Yeah, it's you like can. impossible. It's like Psy Games, uh, what was it? When they had Rage of the Bahamut released back in the day, and because they put no effort in treating the game well, it died. And now it's like, they're like, mm, I don't think we can go back to Western market again. We need to find like publishers to help us now, you know, stuff like that. Oh, shit like that happened. Okay, yeah. so I double checked and Romancing Saga Reuniverse released. Well, I'm not sure how the App Store release things, well, the Play Store release thing works, because if it's like a free release, then is because it says it released on June 21st, 2020. But I want to say that was earlier that year when it released. Like, but yeah, like there an might early be... access period or something. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how they handled that in terms of like a, like a soft launch, like beta or anything to that extent. Actually, when did my? There's a good way for me to find out. When did my impressions go up? I don't know why I'm looking this up. I'm just curious because it's the <laughs> last like gotcha game I've played. Uh huh. Yeah. I mean, in, in other news, like uh, like when one gotcha shuts down, the uh, another has still been rolling on for better or worse. The year reincarnation started its crossover event with uh, Final Fantasy fourteen, and a lot of people seem to like the the story uh, of that um, because it's oh, actually my focus story. I, I'm playing Grand Blue right now, and they have a Final Fantasy eleven collab. So yeah, now no, I'm getting my cool. And so I'm getting my FF11 spoilers from this game. So it's <laughs> hell like, yeah, cool. just like how I got my Shadowbringer spoilers, even though I, I I don't ever plan to play it, so I don't know the context of anything. I, I love going to the Reddit. They're like, oh, it's like I might play FF11 in the future. It's like, can I free? No, you're not. Don't say, tell them no, you're not. You fucking liar. <laughs> you you would have played FF11 already if you planned to. It's like, is this event going to spoil me on FF11? It's Seriously, like... the fuck? <laughs> I, might, I, I might play it's FF11 funny. in the future, says someone in the year 2022. Come on. Is it hey, up if uh, the closest I've been to trying out Grand Blue is how, like, like, the FF11 event is so fucking faithful? Like, just seeing screenshots of people, like, posting about it on Twitter, it's like, man, they just really captured the feeling of the FF11 user interface. Oh, they yeah. got the user interface. They even have a meme rope moment with Lisette where I think it was her older form that comes and grabs her cheeks. Something like that. I don't know. It's I don't play FF11 like completely, so I don't know. But they, they meme that part in the artwork. So if, was, I um... ever get, if I ever get a month where I have no other obligations anywhere, I might go back to FF11. <laughs> I just don't know when I'd squeeze it in. The, the, there was a people were freaking out last night as of the time of this recording. Uh, where the Grand Blue uh, Twitter account uh, retweeted uh, a new album coming out from the Chainsmokers, and that's because you know um, it samples a, a line from Claris in the game. Yeah, it's called "Go Go Captain." That's what it says in Japanese. That's so sick, actually. That's funny. 
but yeah, that's the Tales of Lunaria. Uh, there it is. It's uh, it's done. It's over. Later in the year, on August 4th, the PlayStation 4 version of 13 Sentinels Aegis Rim will receive the additional weapons and balancing that was introduced in the Switch version into the PS4 version of the game. Additionally, in Japan, while the English version of the game had dual voiceover, the Japanese version didn't get the English voiceover until the Switch release. So the PS4 version will now introduce uh, English voiceovers for the Japanese release of the that version of the game. So as far as I can tell, on August 4th, basically both in Japan and in English, the PS4 and Switch versions of 13 Sentinels will be in parody. Which is just kind of cool because we saw these kind of unexpected updates to the Switch release of the game that Nathan covered for us about a month ago or so. And now they're going to basically backlink them to the uh, to the original PlayStation 4 version. Oh, the, the fucking cheese tactic of uh, overpowered sentry guns has its days numbered. Oh, no. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's all over. The, the, the Switch version went out. It's the canon version. But if anyone still haven't bought the Switch version... They were having a sale in Canada. I don't think anyone here who's listening from Canada. You never know. You never know. Hey, if you're a Canadian listener, let Chow know. Wow. Well, <laughs> if, you're, if, you're, if you're interested in 13 Sentinel on Switch, they have a sale for this game in videogameplus.ca. It's $50 Canadian. You know, that's dirt cheap in US dollars. You better get this game. It's a steal. Yeah. Um, so I'm looking at Kite's uh, news story here. And mm-hmm. Atlas announced uh, on their Japanese blog about these updates to the PS4 version of the game, are we? Is it assumed that it'll be true for the English release of the PS4 version of the game? Like, I, like I don't know how this. Like the the content that Atlas only ever uh, like announced for the Switch version of Thirteen Sentinels is they were adding like new weapon, new weapons for the for the robots. They were not, um, they they never uh, like advertised that it was getting a balance patch along with the mm-hmm. Switch version. So I don't know how you would like backport. New entirely new weapons for the robots without also having the balance patch. I can't. I don't. I don't foresee them doing that and like keeping the balance patch the same. It just it would complicate things. So we're making kind of an assumption that the weapons and the balance are paired together. Though there's a chance they might not be. I mean, there's a there's a there's a slim chance it might not. You know, very. But that would really make a lot of sense. Yeah, it, it would it, it would be a very baffling decision if they went that route. I I'd have to assume this is also mm-hmm. uh, just co- coming like whatever the Switch had. It's now coming to the PS4 version. I think I think the thing that makes me interested in this, the the thing that makes me think about it now that I I, I I'm kind of pondering over it is if they're gonna like also somehow I don't know how the fuck you do this because I'm not a game developer, but if they somehow have the patch like have the optimizations that the switch had when running the game so i wonder if like if the ps4 version of like 13 sentinels will run better after the patch if it they somehow like made optimizations on the back end for the third for uh the battles in, th- in the ps4 version to run better like how the like how the switch is able to handle those heavier battles in its 13 sentinels port you know what i'm saying kind of well- I haven't played it yet. I was waiting for a Switch version. I own this game, but I haven't played it. That's the I like how you were just telling this, like this, you know, the Switch version. You haven't played it yet. I don't know. You, you just jump in and saying it's on sale in Canada. Yeah, I mean, get on it. Fifty dollars is dirt cheap, man. No, I'm like because what am I trying to say? Like a lot, a lot of uh, 
the one of the things that people like really stood about 13 Sentinels really stood out on 13 Sentinels on the PS4 version is that in some later battles, you know how the the PS4 would just chug at like single digit frame rate, like it just it was really struggling to. Like, yeah, I, I, it was part battles. of the charm. And normally, yeah, I'm yeah. not one of those people, but because it's during one of those huge missile rain yeah. attacks, it's yeah. like it's, there's charm to it. Yeah, like like that's that's fine. Like okay, but that's one of the things that like people really like. That's that's one of the things that stuck out to people on the Switch version of Thirteen Sentinels when you do like multiple missile rains. You know that game still is still able to like keep it together. It doesn't like it, it, you might see a drop here and there. Like there's definitely a like drops, but not like as severe as the ps4 version it doesn't go to like digital single uh like single digit frame rate and whatnot um during those sections on the switch so like they made like significant optimizations on that end now i'm wondering if they if they're bringing like this patch to the ps4 version that like takes stuff from the switch i wonder if they're also gonna like optimize the ps4 performance of the game uh with this patch so that it doesn't struggle with the missile rains like how the switch version doesn't really struggle as much with the missile you know what i mean I, i'm, I'm Maybe, sure probably but I, I, fine-tune yeah. it that's what i would think yeah i don't know but i don't think 13 sentinels um was ps4 pro enhanced or was it because it might have been i'm not sure exactly i don't remember that's a weird that's uh, a, that feels like a bygone era the ps4 Pro era, PS4 Pro enhanced. Like I wasn't expecting that. I was like, oh, because yeah. if it's if it's not, then I'd say that the definitive way to play the game is probably on Switch now. Yeah, yeah. And if if Atlas West comes out and makes clear like what the English PS4 version of the game uh, covers or will incorporate, we'll obviously follow up on that. As of right now, as far as I can tell, they haven't said anything. This is all from uh atlas in japan on their official website uh we have one other delay that was announced just last week and that is is that starfield will release in 2023 it was originally scheduled to release i believe on november 11th of this year this is uh this is a bummer but also like hard to be too upset about because we've hardly seen anything it's all been like in engine concept art and some environments and that's pretty much it most of the stuff they've shown so far is literally just like dev team like round tables yeah not even so you know i i wasn't too upset about it but it i mean it's just the fact that they haven't shown much of the game at this point much at all so well, it's also just kind of interesting because this is like the first 2022 game that had a release date because they announced this like in the middle of 2021 saying november 11 2022 it's weird to announce a specific date that far out yeah, that, just... that, that that was already like a red flag to me of like of announcing it that far out of like you're trying to target this date this early on. Like I'm just like thinking there's no way you in the middle of the uh, in like at the yeah. peak of the pandemic too. Yeah. So it's like I remember when the Adam first drafted his uh, RPGs of the year list. Like this is one of the first things on it, and it's still for November of this year, it might still be one of the few things that had had a date. I guess it's going to be moved out of there now if it isn't already. But uh, obviously, Bethesda kind of has a somewhat earned reputation for having releases be kind of buggy on launch. And if this is something that they can do to make sure that Starfield releases in a good state, I'm all for it. It's because we haven't seen enough of the game to really be that like anticipatory of it. Is that a word? I don't know. Uh, But 
I'm 100% okay with it being delayed to 2023. And they haven't specified any... Uh, oh, I guess they do specify delayed to the first half of 2023. Yeah, this is along with uh, one of their other projects, Redfall. Yeah, from Arcane. Yeah. So, I mean, not for me, not entirely a surprise, you know. It, it was always going to be... To me, it was always going to be difficult to stick to that like hard release date that far out. So... Uh, take the, all the time you need, you know, to make a good first impression on like one of your first big projects under Microsoft. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. It'll be the first Bethesda title under the Microsoft banner or the first major one, I think. I, I don't know. if they, Did they say that we're going to see this again, like around the the, the not E3 time, the, the Microsoft event uh, next month? I don't think they said specifically, but we sort of assumed. Huh. Well, no, maybe we'll see another updated look uh, uh, on it. And... Yeah. And to close out the podcast, we'll go through a couple uh, sales updates. The first one is that Elden Ring has sold over 13 million units worldwide. Uh, we've already learned that it had sold 12 million units uh, in the few weeks after launch. And the most interesting thing here, uh, I guess I haven't there. Should I share this? I haven't verified this myself, but uh, I've seen going around that. Elden Ring this year has now outsold Call of Duty, which is just a, kind of an interesting. Yeah. I saw that like from an IGN tweet, like uh, like like on an image on that. I, I I I took that at face value, so I assume IGN did the like like work to announce yeah. to say that. It, it's worth noting that uh, this number itself is also a little bit uh, misleading because yeah. we already knew that it had sold so many. Cop, um, copies like a few weeks after launch this number is only through the end of march so realistically it's probably closer to 15 million sold now well, that's what i'm thinking too so yeah, any so, of these numbers that come out of financial results are always a few months delayed right. like like the nintendo ones that we just got yep well but, like i mean it's it's, a, it's it's spectacular it, because this is this is how much I was, like uh, think about it like sure it has a multiplayer component but it's largely a single player big exp- big single player experience. Yeah, it's it's wild how uh it seems very likely that that Elden Ring will just straight up be the best selling game of the year and it's like a from software game. And even if it, there was competition, it seems likely that like if Starfield hadn't been delayed, which we'll get to that in a bit, uh, it's just insane that From Software has come so far where Sony sk- originally skipped on localizing uh, Demon Souls themselves to the point where it's the biggest game of the year, unquestionably. It's a mainstream success. It just still blows my mind. By the way, all, all this, this all this is, is in the context of U.S. release, best-selling game in the U.S., overtaking Call of Duty in the U.S. I don't know how it looks on a worldwide front. Yeah, and also, we, I think this was mentioned with the earlier sales milestone, too, but Dark Souls series, after Dark Souls 3 released, hit 13 million like as a trilogy at that point, shortly after Dark Souls 3. So it's probably much higher than that now, but... Basically, Elden Ring surpassed the sales of like the first three Dark Souls games around the time that Dark Souls three released. So it's just like a massive increase in sales from then. I just, I just don't understand like what what was the thing with this game that made it like sell so much so fast? I don't actually don't know. (laughs) I think 
I think well, the series was continuing to get bigger and bigger. I think like Dark Souls 3 has sold over 10 million at this point. Like Dark Souls sales. Uh, I want to say, yep. Um, GameSpot, uh, when did they post this? This was 2020. As of May 2020, Dark Souls 3 had sold over 10 million copies. So even before Elden Ring came out, like the series had been growing and like 10 million copies is like a massive success for any game. So the potential was already there. And uh, then you have like the George R. R. Martin stuff. You have word of mouth. The fact that it's releasing on every system under the sun and like and there's also no competition, you know. Like, well, that's fucked up. Why would you say that's that about Horizon? <laughs> so I mean, all the competition. I point out that he's right, but you shouldn't say it. It looks like the Dark Souls franchise, when they announced <laughs> Dark Souls 3 was at 10 million, that was in 2020, the franchise was at 27 million. So it seems like there had these all these games had like a really long tail. Like after the release of Dark Souls three, people picking up the first two, and then I think just in the time since, you know, Elden Ring was just came in at like a perfect time when the Dark Souls series was just becoming more and more popular, even well after like the original game. I wonder when this is gonna plateau for for Elden Ring because this is all still like within the context. Like it really hasn't had like a, like a big significant price cut. Like the holiday obviously hasn't come yet. Yet. It's gonna continue to go up uh, because it's because uh, it hasn't reached those like milestones yet. Uh, yeah, in its life cycle. So that's actually a really good point, Adam. Uh, so just posting the staff, ch- well, the voice channel chat. This uh, one excerpt where uh, Dark Souls Three had sold about three million units within its first month of sales. So assuming that there's even a similar like tail to Elden Ring, this is going to be insane down the line like i think it's not out of the question that a few like three or four years from now we might be looking back at elden ring sales and being like oh this is 25 30 million copies sold it's it's crazy but that's like legitimately a strong possibility i could see it maybe getting to 20 million by the end of the year maybe it, it, it feels like a long it, it shot. Its, it needs its Switch Pro port. It feels like a long well, shot. Actually, actually, I would bet money that it would reach 20 million by the end of the year because you have to understand Black Friday sales. Yeah, that's why. Mm-hmm. And also, we'll like, I think the Dark Souls series has always been a really strong like Steam catalog sale sort of thing. Or once it oh, gets discounted also, to... Go ahead. Um, the Keelys, like, you know, it's probably like, especially now that Starfield's delayed, the fact there's no Breath of the Wild 2 this year, it's getting game of the year. Like, there's no question. So, like, when that happens, that's another boost in, like, uh, like I, I do wonder you know. if they'll, like, they'll announce, like, uh, if there's gonna, if there's any DLC plans for this game. Yeah, yeah nothing, nothing Ooh. announced. Huh. Also, would, of course, also be a boost. It, yep. It's wild, though, because, like, Again, we're just about probably to get to Starfield, but it's wild. Like we already did Starfield. Ha- we did. Oh. Yes, yep. we just did. It. Yeah, that's all. <laughs> oh, um, well, to be honest, there wasn't a whole lot to say about it because it's yeah. kind of like we haven't seen much yeah. of the game. So it it's wild. Like this is a bit of a tangent, but like we're not even halfway through the year, and with all these delays, it's kind of crazy to think that we all like pretty much everyone already knows what's going to be the the. Uh, easy game the year for like 
90% of outlets. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that like, RPG site tends to, tends to be hipster sometimes. Yeah, oh, yeah. Xenoblade, Xenoblade 3. That, that's probably going to be ours. I'm calling it now. You don't know. It could be Xenoblade 3. I mean, we could even be Strange. We could even be Monochrome Mobius, you know? That's, that's, it's, it could be Monarch. I'm feeling good about Monarch. Mm. Oh, no. <laughs> Well, I got a couple other uh, financials. Adam mentioned this in passing, but we also did get the uh, Nintendo's fiscal year 2022 financial results. Uh, as typical, this usually it's just kind of like updates for catalog titles, like how well current Pokemon games are selling and things like that. I guess the big thing here is that uh, Pokemon Legends Arceus has reached. What has it reached? It's 12.64 million units shipped, 11.4 million sold through. One Sword and Shield are up to 24 and a quarter million. Diamond, brilliant Diamond Shining Pearl are at 14.5 million. These are all really big numbers. Pokemon seems to still be a monster in terms of financial success. I guess you could say. Uh, are, you, are, you telling me, are you telling me right now, as with the figures <laughs> that, we, that we know about Elden Ring, has sold more than Pokemon Legends Arceus? Yes. Huh? And Pokemon Legends Arceus had, was out for an extra month. Dang. No. But also Dang. only on one system. Yeah, but it's also Nintendo Switch and it's Pokemon. That's all. Yeah, it's also yeah. Pokemon. Yeah, <laughs> Pokemon's only the one of the largest brand names in the entire world. It is the largest brand name. The is, entire is, world. Is, is, is it? Is it the largest one? I wasn't sure if it was the. Yeah, largest well, one. yeah, it is. It's the largest okay. media franchise in the entire world. I'll, I'll try to give myself a qualifier, an out, just in case. I mean, when you think about it, it's obvious. It's got manga, anime, games, all yeah. sorts of toys, merchant. Yeah. Not even close. That's really. true. So what's what's the Elden Ring manga? Where's the Elden Ring anime? Elden well, Ring you, you say that, but like Bandai Namco even said when they announced the first bits of sales that they were planning on uh, making cross media stuff. For. That's so true. It, it's common. It's common. Uh-oh. Elden Ring anime adaptation. Elden Ring ha- live action Hollywood movie. Hey, it's I like wouldn't be shocked if uh, honestly, if they made a live action TV series, I would not. I would be down for it. I think that for it too. Yeah. Look, they already announced. Was it the near anime? Was it a near anime? Yeah, yeah, it was a near, near TV anime. Yeah. They announced well, that. they already announced that anything's possible. Okay. There's a uh, Legend of Mana anime. That's true. Oh, Hell yeah. yeah, dude! You know, I just realized that they mentioned it. A near TV anime means that they're gonna do collabs with a near TV anime, uh, uh, separate for the near like game automata game itself. They'll make yep. that distinction. Fuck. Oh my god! I mm. <laughs> amazing oh, man. We we live in a cycle. I I still find it like uh, honestly, we should have seen all this near like automata stuff coming when uh, the near automata like content in Final Fantasy fourteen. One of the characters is literally two P, which was the alternate color slash alternate ca- uh, character color. Well alternate character for 2B and Soul Calibur 6 is now canonized as an actual like yeah the, the character yeah. in the in the Drakenir uh, universe yeah she didn't, uh, the actual real the color, a color swap is an actual real character now through FF14 and the reincarnation mobile game oh okay well that, that's what that, that, that's it for Pokemon and, uh, sales news <laughs> ending off on near <laughs> well the last bit here is uh, Rune Factories 5 has sold half a million units, which that's really good. Yeah, for a small a small number compared to Elden Ring and Pokemon, but half a million for Rune Factory Five, which is a Switch only release that just came out in English a month ago or a little over a month ago. 
I don't know. That seems really good to me. I'm gonna look something I, up. Their numbers are really impressive. If you go by how how it was before, I think I think they sold like about like eighty thousand around like Rune Factory two or or three. I think it was. Then I think around Rune Factory four, the sales of the game nearly like doubled because they introduced a female protagonist. So now they got the whole entire uh, what's it like the whole entire the ultimate crowd. Then it's like, ooh, that's three hundred and fifty thousand. I think that was the lifetime sales of of four in Japan. I think it was, and I don't know what it was in the West, but you know, five hundred thousand. Like you know, they're already hitting numbers that surpass four, even though four is the better game. I'm thinking this sounds like mm, twenty million by the end of the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, you know, this, I the, mean, this is the best selling, right? For sure, yeah, it's going to be the best selling. I think there was a long drought for from the gap between four to five. So people are desperate for a new Rune Factory game. So that that comes in into play. But you think you think we'll see like a, a release in like more platforms next year for Rune Factory five? Yeah, I hope it comes to PC so I don't have to deal with performance issues. That's <laughs> the main reason why. Yeah, I I yeah, because it's like it, would you say that the main issue for Rune Factory five is performance or like it, obviously it's performance, but I also find the combat's not as engaging as the one in four. It's very easy. You could basically break the game with like level fifty-ish equipment. You know, it's you know. I think like if you actually even data mine the game, there's like all these extra bosses that never even appeared in the game. You wonder it's like the game was shipped kind of incomplete. Maybe I don't know. Yeah. Like, but I don't know. I mean, it's a sequel, I guess. It's something. But I hope you know they could learn something from this and make better. Rune gotta, gotta wait for Rune Factory Five special for uh, for it to be fully featured. <laughs> I was trying to find to see if I could find any worldwide sales combining like Rune Factory Four and Four Special, but it's it looks like it's not something that they report on very often. Gamatsu has mentioned that Rune Factory Four Special sold a hundred thousand units on uh, in North America on Switch. But that I guess that's really it. So I think five hundred thousand is like a, a high watermark for the uh, for the series worldwide. But I don't know that for certain, just because I can't easily compare it to uh, previous entries. At least, at least from regardless, a quick search. That's, regardless, that's very good, and it seems like uh, Xseed is doing it well, uh, very well these days, which is good to hear. It feels like uh, at least around our sphere, we don't talk about them quite as much since they don't do Falcom games anymore, but. It's good yeah. to see them doing well. I mean, like the the, the I I'm kind of interested in that Deadcraft game they're working uh, with the Marvelous on. Like I I do have the demo downloaded, but I haven't really checked it out. But they just haven't really. Also, like, aren't they doing much. that Loop Infinity or game, whatever? It's Loop called? eight, yeah. Loop eight. Also, it's just mentioned that Infinity symbol. <laughs> Uh, just, just also, just noting that like Sakuna Rice and Ruin sold more than a million. Like that's crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hey, new, no more heroes three is coming to platforms that can actually run it uh, this year. That's true. It seems like they struggled it. after they ditched Falco. Sounds like, dude. <laughs> I, 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 I think I think I think really really fucking looked at it uh, with the Sakuna. Honestly, yeah, yeah. Like, it's well, it's, whoever whoever at Marvelous made the decision to basically support those Edelweiss for as long as they needed to develop that game. Whoever made that decision 
made a good decision. Apparently they've made it a thing where they're going to do it with other um, indie developers or, and that's really cool. That's really uh, good. I, I wouldn't give too much credit to Marvelous though, because apparently they weren't going to support it on Switch until a Nintendo representative just said, hey, this would be great on Switch. So, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Credit is too. <laughs> Dang, that is true. I forgot about that. And that covers us for news for the weekend. We're uh, nearly at the three-hour mark, so a big shift compared to last week where we had to fill the space. So a lot to talk about and tons of in-detailed impressions <laughs> of the games we've been playing. All those reviews up on the site. Uh, obviously, it was cool to hear um, James's first impressions for the Steam Deck, and we'll kind of touch on that as we go forward as Chow and Josh and potentially the rest of us get hands on those or try those out. Uh, all these slowly populating the release date calendar for the year, and uh, even though a few things have been pushed out to next year, uh, and all these upcoming games that we're interested in trying and seeing if they can compete with Elden Ring, which is apparently the the runaway favorite for Game of the Year, but we'll see what those what those RPG, RPG site hipsters think about that when we get to that uh, the holiday season. Uh, all those uh, reviews for Weird West, Aiden Chronicle Rising, Voice of Cards, The Forsaken Maiden, and The Centennial Case are up on the site, as well as James's feature on Monochromobius and its worldwide release later this year. You can find RPG site on all the social media platforms. We're on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can join our Discord by going to discord.gg slash RPG site or going to the uh, hitting the link at the top of our homepage. And we'll be back next week with the uh, another episode of the Tetracast. If you are Canadian... Chime in. Let let Chow know you're here and listening, and uh, consider right, buying right. consider buying Thirteen Sentinels Aegis Rim on Switch. As far um, as we know, Chow is the only Canadian on Earth. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, until next time, guys and girls, stay safe, take care, and we'll talk to you then. Can't spell Luminaria without an L. <laughs>